Welcome into Yeehaw Junction. I love saying that for the first time, That's, by the way. That sounds even better than I thought it would. Doesn't it have a it ring just, to it? It's blasting through my ears, and it's it's beautiful. <laughs> it's <laughs> the Yeehaw Junction Podcast. The Yeehaw Junction Podcast. My name is Ben Ingram. This is Ricky Mast, and we are delighted to have you with us. Whether it's just one of you out there, or maybe couple of you actually like this show that's great we're we're a couple of music junkies and we know each other through work first and foremost um i'm the radio broadcaster for the atlanta braves ricky does social media and many other things for the atlanta braves so from mid-february about the time spring training starts till whenever the season ends in this case it was about two and a half weeks ago uh in october um ricky and i are you know up to our neck in baseball can confirm and we are loaded with baseball, yet we discovered that outside of baseball, and, and Ricky and I and some other people are really close friends, and we talk about music all the time. And I'm trying to think, Rick, outside of baseball, I don't know if there's a topic we discuss more of, whether it be face-to-face or over the phone or in text message than music and how um, how wide our spectrum is for the music that we like. hundred uh, percent. There's, And those are, for me personally, those are my two favorite things in life. I mean, outside of... You know, you got your your friends, your family, your faith, all that. But as far as activities, interests, hobbies, right. it's it's sports and music for me. And since this is on the Yeehaw Junction podcast and not on the Behind the Braves podcast that I that I host, if you force me to the rest of my life just pick one thing that I can enjoy, if it's sports or music, first of all, losing either would be devastating. But I I could not exist without music. Yeah, music is, and it's been that way ever since I was a little kid. So I think it makes sense that. We have this, this, I don't know, it makes sense for us to start this thing. Yeah, I think so too. And, and it's not just that we enjoy music. Ricky and I both like so many different kinds of music from so many different genres, so many different years, generations, et cetera. Uh, we have some really nerdy discussions over music. Um, artists that have been dead for many years, bands <laughs> that nobody knows about, right. uh, music videos, and things like that. So we're just kind of nerds about it. And given that we kind of speak the same language, we wanted to have this podcast. And here's the deal. This is a, a podcast that we might get to do. Our goal is what, a dozen episodes? A, a dozen for, for season one would be, I think, you and I know how the off baseball offseason goes. It moves so quickly. And we're going to be, as you said, we're recording this towards the end of October we're going to blink and mm. we're both going to be down Northport for spring training next, next. So all that to say, I think a dozen is what we're aiming for, for this first season. And I couldn't be more excited about it. Yeah, me too. As we're recording this, it's Monday, October the 30th. So we would like to do about a dozen of these between now and when we head down to spring training, which will be about for me, about the third week of February. I know you'll head down early as well. At some point I'll head down. I'll, I'll be there about the same time as you. And then you're there for the duration. The duration. I, I, I come back to Atlanta in early. March. I mean, maybe we can knock out our last, our episode number 12 down there in Florida. That'd maybe, be pretty so, cool. Maybe we should broadcast the last one live from the Fort Myers rodeo. That would be great. We went last we year. We went this past season. And, we sure did. And it was, or we could season. actually set up an actual yeehaw junction and, oh. and and do an episode there now we're getting somewhere yeah what is in there like a uh what's the the famous is like a stuckies or some gas station it's a bp, it's, a BP. It, it, it's oh. more infamous than it is famous okay. i'd say <laughs> it's, not, it's not a place you want to spend a whole lot of time but uh we were just kind of kicking around names for our podcast and yeehaw junction is a place where we would always stop in spring training when we're doing spring training road trips and it just sounded like the name of a music podcast. So we're, we're going with it. We know all about it. We've been there multiple times. Yeehaw Junction, Florida. It's on the Florida Turnpike. Not much to it. But we thought it'd be a lot of fun to 
run with that as the name of our show. So here in our first episode, we're going to we're going to have a different topic every single episode. And I know that our topic for today is and, and you and I came up with a, a bunch of topics. We chose a dozen that we wanted to have podcasts on today is time machine concerts. If you had a time machine and could travel to any year to see any band or artist, who would those artists be and what year would you want to see them in? And I know that you and I have about 10, 11, 12 uh, individuals, artists, bands, etc. Uh, that we'd like to go through and just kind of nerd out on the timeline of guys that or bands or or uh, or girls that we wanted to see at, at different mm-hmm. points uh, that we weren't alive for. So that's our episode today. I know we're going to have several other episodes down the line of different topics and such. Uh, I know I, I think our next podcast, we're going to have our favorite side of a vinyl album, studio albums only. I'm already pumped about that. One I bet too. you are. I've, I've been nerding out getting ready for this one and that one. The other night, my wife had already gone to bed, was in, was already asleep. And I was just sitting there in my chair and I kind of glanced over at my vinyl collection and I was like, well, I could start planning now. Yeah. And I was just pulling them out one by one and going, all right, which side here? And I'm like, oh, I got to include this one. So I'm already nerding out about that one. We haven't even, we're just, we're now starting the first one and I'm already ready for the next one. So. And, and the preparation is fun. It is. You know, it's something you love. Things. It's something you care about. It's not, it's not even work or it's preparation. But for me, I was just enjoying, again, nerding out the whole purpose of this thing. The whole idea behind this thing was us being nerds about this right. stuff and loving it. Yeah. And just loving talking about it and yeah, just, just shooting the breeze with each other about it. Mm-hmm. And when we get to episode number two, we'll give you an idea what, we'll, what uh, episode number three will be a little bit of preview. But as far as the preview goes for episode two, it'll be our favorite side of a vinyl record, uh, studio albums only. So that'll be coming up on episode number two. As for today, our Time Machine concerts, and we uh, honestly, I, I think I've got nine listed i think you've got so i have 11 now i i tried to cut it down to 10 and if you made me i could uh but since you've got nine i'm like i'll keep 11 that gives us gives us 20 20. gives us even 20 by the way this is not this is not the even my definitive list because i've got another uh seven or eight here that are honorable mentions that i wish i could include yeah uh but these are the ones that i just i settled on and before we get into it, I did want to ask you, because I have a prediction here, knowing your interests and you know mine, how many, what is the number of the same, like how many of the, of the same artists are we going to choose? So out of your list and my list, how many names are going to match All right, looking up? at my nine. By the way, we're not going to attempt the the match up the year part, because that's that's too hard. I'm just talking just the artist part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, two, three. At least three, maybe four. We're already Actually, I'm feeling pretty good about four. We're already we are already thinking with the same brain here because I'm gonna I am gonna write down exactly what I verbatim what I wrote down in my notes. How many artists do you think we'll have in common? I say four. Three, I'm very sure of, and I think that there might be a fourth in there as well. So I'm like I'm a hundred percent on three of them. Like, okay, I'm sure of it. And the fourth one, I'm I'm like. Somewhere between 50 and 60%. Like, I, mm-hmm. good enough to say that I also think it's going to be. And this is what's funny to me is I think we'll have those in common, but I think the ones that are not in common will be very different and it'll be very scattered all over multiple musical genres. That's my guess. There are two on mine that I would be shocked if they're on yours. Yeah. There's, then there's three or four, definitely three that I would be shocked if they weren't on yours that are on mine. So the, the, there's one more. Like, I'm not going to have Lady Gaga. I think you probably will. <laughs> 
How did the, so you got? I didn't know you saw my list before we started, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, don't think either, I don't think either one of us have her. No, no, no disrespect. No, she's outstanding actually, talent. I, I, you know what? I like her uh, on the new Stones album, Hackney Diamonds. Yeah, yeah. with with her and Stevie Wonder sounds good. Sure does. Yeah, not not no hate. All good. Absolutely. She's just not on these lists. <laughs> so this that's our introduction to episode one of uh, Yeehaw Junction. So we're going to just dive right into this thing. I know that, um, well, since you have 11, I have nine, we're going to alternate back and forth. Okay. And you can start and, okay. and dive right in. Who's your first pick? All right. And so this, this I'll count down from 11. I've, I, this, this list could change. Given the day or time of day it is, you right, know, how music right. interests and tastes are. It's like I get sucked into an artist for a week and then I change the next week, whatever. So, but I'll, I'll stick with the loose ranking list I got here. So, checking in at 11, I agonized about which year to go back to with this artist because there are two distinct eras with this artist, being that there was a different singer. Uh, ACDC uh -huh. is where I'm at with 11. I've always really enjoyed ACDC, just loved their music. My quandary and why I was initially actually going to be leave them be the artist that I left out is if I want to go back with a time machine and see ACDC, I got to see them two times mm -hmm. because I got to see them with Bon Scott in mm -hmm. the 70s. And then I got to see them with Brian Johnson and with Back in Black in their catalog. And also I, Thunderstruck is maybe my favorite ACDC song. And that didn't come out till uh, what, 90, 91. So I settled on 1991. It'd be like two different bands. It it really is. And I love the old videos with Bond. Those albums are classic. And then Brian Johnson steps in. Of course, Bond Scott tragically passes away in 1980, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And Brian Johnson steps in. And the first thing they do with him and the band is record Back in Black. Yeah. And, and, and it's just like, I guess the, there is one good answer here. You can't really go wrong with picking any of the years with either form. But it, to me, it's, it is almost like two different bands. But... I settled on 91 because, A, I get to hear all the hits, all the songs I want to hear. And by that point, ACDC has kind of become this big stage show. And then I go back to being a teenager and hearing ACDC live for the first time. And that was recorded in that era, that early 90s era of ACDC. So that was where I, I landed with it. I, I There's just there's so much there to unpack with them. I, it's hard to go, like, which, which way do you go? I had to settle on, give me all the hits. And the big, the big arena rock show with ACDC, right. because Brian, there are songs that Brian Johnson sings that Bon Scott sang. Right. If you just chose 1978 ACDC, it's just Bon Scott, and there's not going to be anything after that. I'm going to see. You're going to see hell of a show with Bon yeah. '78, but you're not going to hear "Back in Black," "Hell's Bells," "You Shook Me All Night Long," right? Uh, "Shoot to Thrill." You're not going to hear "Thunderstruck," which comes, you know, a decade later. So ultimately, I just had to go with. The, the the definitive ACDC album of of Back in Black. That's 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 subjective, of course. By the way, this, we should probably preface this whole podcast with this. At least this is my opinion. When we're doing these lists or rankings or whatever, this is just our personal yeah. favorites. Uh, we're not here to be the Rolling Stone top 500 albums <gasps> and say, this is the definitive best live performer of all time. No, this is just... This is me and Ben. There's two clowns talking. Two clowns who, if we had a friggin' DeLorean made by mm -hmm. Doc Brown, we could hop in it and go back and see some of our favorite artists. So let me ask you this. Yeah. You're, you're what, 41? 40. 40. I'm 43. The first time you ever heard ACDC, which version of ACDC was it? Brian Johnson. Okay. It was You Shook Me All Night Long. And I think 
I'm not 100% on this, but I think as silly of a way to, to hear ACDC, ACDC for the first time, I think the first time I heard them and at least knew it was them was the Howard Stern movie, Private, pa- Private Parts, that came out in like 96 or 97, yeah. something like that. You would have been like, what, 13? About 13, yeah. And there's a scene in the movie where ACDC, like it's a, actually towards the end of the movie where, where ACDC plays a concert and they play that song in the movie and i think that was the first time i had heard a song by them now going back a year or two i was at that point in my life i was a big beavis and butthead fan that was the original (laughs) run of beavis and butthead and butthead of course wore an acdc t-shirt beavis wore a metallica t-shirt which spoiler alert for all you folks out there uh i am a metallica is my all-time favorite artist of any genre of any kind i'm obsessed seen them nine times in the last 23 years so they're going to come up a lot probably in the course of the, the show of Ye- of the Yeehaw Junction podcast. Yeah. Uh, but I believe the first time I actually, I knew through like Beavis and Butthead's the silly example, but you know, you see ACDC t-shirts. That's like a, it's an iconic logo you're with, I'm with my mom and Walmart or whatever. And you're going through the music section, you see the ACDC stuff. But I think the first time I actually heard a song by them was in that movie. And immediately, I mean, yeah, I was done immediately. Yeah. I went and got back in black and uh, after, after that, I'm not sure what the order was that I started buying the albums at that, at that point in time, it would have been CDs. Highway to hell was probably an early one. Um, Let there be rock. I mean, I, I still remember when their 2000 album stiff upper lip came out. I mean, I think I went and bought that the day. It, it was out. good. It's really good. And it's one that gets a lot of, love but it's a badass acdc cover with the bronze statue of angus and yeah stiff upper lip the title track is great like there's there's some good tunes on it so uh i've talked myself into now putting them back in my top 10 well here, <laughs> i'm right there with you and here's why i asked that question the first time i ever heard acdc was back in black so i'm probably 11 12 that's what 91 that album comes out back in black yeah 80 80 Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're right. You're, you, you've been 11 or 12 when you heard it. For the yes, first time. Yeah, 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 when I heard it for yeah, the first time. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, I'm, I hear that for the first time, and I'm like, this is, this is awesome. But all I knew, I thought, that was, I thought that was the only album that they had. I thought that was a brand new album when I heard it. We had a, a local rock station back in Mississippi, Z106. They're still classic rock. And that's where I learned um, about classic rock, ACDC, et cetera. Then I hear Razor's Edge right after that. Mm-hmm. So which which had come out maybe a year or two before I actually heard Back in Black for the first time. So Back in Black had been out for a while. I heard it at like 11 or 12. And then I hear Razor's Edge, Thunderstruck, et cetera. And then it's not till after that that I really start discovering um, older stuff. Bon Scott, I had no idea they had a previous singer. Me either. And then I discover that this guy passed away and alcohol and, and all that stuff. I hear... I mean, songs like Big Balls and stuff like <laughs> right, that. I'm like, right. these guys are awesome. Uh, Flick of the Switch, I think, is a great. I love that album. Um, but it was it was so cool because when I discovered them, it was midstream, and I did not know that, that the stream went back 10, 12, 15 years before that. So it was like discovering a new band, but discovering so much that had taken so much history that had taken place before that. And that's why... That band was so much fun to discover in the age that we discovered it, because I don't know about you. I, I wasn't allowed to listen to ACDC when I was 11, 12 years old, but I found a way. Right. And, right. and I love that kind of music. Yeah. I think my parents would have been OK with it. They were they were always really good about. I mean, I, so for those who don't know anything about me. So my dad is a retired NASCAR driver and I grew up 
going to NASCAR races in the in the 80s and 90s. And I was usually, th- thankfully, my parents made a lot of sacrifices for me to be able to travel to racetrack. Most of the other drivers' kids weren't there, or uh-huh. they certainly weren't there on a regular basis. So all that to say, I was usually the only kid there. So I was around grown men that are pit crew members on a race team. And this is not quite, it's not quite the multi-million dollar sport it is today or billion dollar sport. It was a little more grassroots back then. So right. a lot of blue collar, uh, tough dudes who said a lot of words that maybe other parents wouldn't want their seven or eight year old to hear. But <laughs> I grew up in that. And so they were always really cool about like movie language, whatever. Uh, so I think they would have been okay with it. Uh, but I grew up listening to a lot of country music with them. And then my mom was, dad is pretty much solidly country. Mm-hmm. Mom was where I kind of got some other flavors of music. Not so much the hard rock. She wasn't listening to ACDC, but um, maybe that's why when I did discover it later on, it, it, it turned me on. That's I, a good I, one. I hadn't heard it. I don't that's know. a good one. I like that one. Uh, a very unique one. Yeah. Um, I, I, you and I are very similar when it comes to rock, metal, country music. Real country music. That's right. Um, very similar to that kind of stuff. And I'm going to get there, but there's a couple of artists that are kind of the origin for me for the the things that I listen to now. Um, and that's where I want to start. I'm Not to say that I'm going to go in chronographical order, but I just kind of sure. want to knock out the older ones first. It, it, I had a really hard time choosing between these two, so I kind of merged them together. Early 30s, 1931, Carter Family. And Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers is from the same town that I was born in, Meridian, Mississippi. So growing up, I always heard about Jimmy Rogers, country musician, original country musician. Um, And you go back to June of 1931, and both Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family were both well-known at the time, selling records. Uh, Country music was more, people didn't call it country music, it was hillbilly music. Uh, and, and some people thought that was a derogatory term. Uh, Jimmy Rogers didn't think so. But in June of 1931, the Carter family, and that was A.P. Maybell and Sarah Carter, the three, and the two women were cousins, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and those are the parents of June Carter Cash, et cetera, kind of that Carter family tree. But this is the original three. And in June of 31, the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers did a recording session in Benton, Kentucky. So I choose them not to say I would have gone to see a concert or anything like that. I don't even know if they did concerts, per se, like you talk about today. But just to pull up a chair and hear that collaboration of Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family, to me, would have been so historic because I view the the Carters and Jimmy Rogers as uh, the earliest ancestors, if you will, of country music as we know now. And, and, and I think I would have loved to have seen, even if it was 20 minutes, just a snapshot of uh, the infancy of that genre coming to life. And, and I know that, that country music kind of developed from multiple places, uh, multiple places in the world, and, and it kind of predates even them. But I think country music as we know now, uh, it started along those lines with them. And I would have loved to have had an opportunity to pull up a stool and listen to them in the very, very early, the earliest days, the earliest ancestral period, I guess you might say, of country music as we know it. Kind of the seed of, of the plant that is, it's become. That's so interesting. I know when you and I were talking about doing the show, one of the topics you had suggested was favorite pre, We just you just termed it favorite artists pre-Elvis Presley. So just I think you use that as your kind of your timestamp. And I said, I love the idea. My problem was 
I don't, I've heard of a lot of people from before that. I don't know that I've ever sure. really know enough about them or have listened to them. So all that to say, I, I love that you said, that, I love the idea of you want to hear their infancy of it, but it's almost like the being there to like watch history happen yeah. for you. Is that, is that kind of the way? It, it's that. It's a couple of different things. It, it is the historical aspect more than anything. Sure. Uh, but I, I think about what they might have. Obviously, they loved singing. They loved playing. Um, I know that they made good money. Jimmy Rogers made really good money. He And he spent it as soon as he got it. It's kind of <laughs> Hank Williams before Hank Williams. But I, I think that these people, the way that they viewed their music, it had to be significantly different than how it's viewed. Now, people do this as a career. I need another hit. I need to, this is what I want to do. They're doing it for a couple of reasons. They really enjoy doing it. Number two, they have things they want to say. Mm-hmm. They had, these are feeling, they felt the, I think they, they saw the world the way that people who love music see the world. They had a, a great soul for it. And I think that would be so fascinating because that's why they were performing. That's why they were singing. Um, I know there's a story about, um, I think it was, I think it was Sarah Carter and she was in love with, uh, a guy. This is after she and I, th- I think she was, I have to look this up. It was the three of them, Mabel Carter, AP Carter, Sarah Carter. One of them, uh, two of the, uh, two of them were married and divorced and one was in love with somebody else and had not seen him in years, but their music was being played all over the country on radio. And she had a song, my blue eyes. And she's, she's like, I'm, perform- I'm going to play it for him. And she's, they sang the song. He heard it in California. And he told his family, I'm going to Texas to get Sarah Carter. Wow. And it, all, he, all he needed to hear was that song. Because he knew that there were feelings between the two that were circumstances. And I know I'm not getting the story exactly right. But it, it's something along those lines. And it was, this is who they were. This is, the world was such a, a larger place then. Uh, it would be so easy to, if you saw someone away from your home, you'd never see them again. It wasn't like you could look them up on Instagram and send them a DM. Right, um, right. <laughs> you, you, they might be lost for good. And he, she had the, this means via the radio, and they were singing songs all the time. They were very popular. He heard the song. He went to get her. And, and I know that's just a, a one story, one um, uh, one example, but I just think that where they were coming from was a very authentic place for what they put into their music, their words. These were real feelings. They were, these were real experiences. Uh, very different than your Friday night back roads <laughs> anthems and such that you hear ad nauseum you, today. You, you don't like a bunch of songs oh about my God. trucks and beer? Oh, man. man. You got a truck? That's, you I, like beer? Right. I don't I like to sing beer. about it. I like trucks. I do too, man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear songs about how people are feeling, their yeah. everyday experiences, not the things that they wear or yeah, I know, uh, the things that they drive. And that's what makes the best music when it's authentic. And yeah. I don't know. Uh, we don't mean to, I, mean, I don't mean to disrespect anybody out there. You sure. dig, dig what you dig. But to me, I can, I, for the most part, I can hear something and say, all right, this is, this is real. This is authentic. This yeah. isn't made up. This isn't written to be a hit. This is just, this is an artist and this is what came out of the artist yeah. in this moment. Yeah. And that's what makes for the best music. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Um, that and, uh, a good song about, uh, the trucks and uh, <laughs> <laughs> what <not. laughs> that's a 1933 for Jimmy, Jimmy Rogers. It was early 30, yeah. 30, 30s. Okay. Yeah. All right. I like it. We're off and right. All right. We're, 
We're, we're, we're doing the wide spectrum here. It's so, so wide. So we, and my list overall, I'm going to be honest, is not crazy, crazy wide. It's, it kind of is, but <laughs> in conjunction with yours, these first couple are, are pretty interesting. So this is my most recent one I'm going back to see. Spoiler alert on that. Um, taking my time machine back to 94. So, and I am going to see, this is definitely the most hardcore artist on my list. I'm going to see Pantera. And I'm going to see them on the Far Beyond Touring the World Tour. I saw a version of Pantera this past summer uh, when I went to see Metallica. It's Phil Anselmo, the lead singer, and Rex Brown, the bassist. They are the the OG to it. But the other two uh, were the Abbott brothers, Dimebag Daryl yep. and Vinnie Paul. And they were legends. And watching videos of their live performances, and it just, it I hated that I didn't get to see those guys. So I would go back to when I feel like they were kind of at their artistic their artistic peak. They had th- a three-album run, which that's another future episode we could do, greatest three-album runs by artists. But uh, Cowboys from Hell, Vulgar Display of Power, and Far Beyond Driven. Those three albums together are, if you're talking heavy, heavy metal, that's as good as it gets yeah. right there. And granted, Metallica is my favorite of all time, but those three are together. And so seeing them with those three albums, and at that time – those were the three albums that they were pulling all of their, their set list from. They were a kind of glam metal band in the eighties. Were they, they really? They were with the big hair. Come on. And I think, eyeliner. Uh, let's see. I think they had, and they had some, and some cheesy album titles. Uh, what was one power metal? I think was that one? <laughs> yeah. So let's see power metal fourth. So they had, I think they had four or five of these glamish type albums. If you go on, were they known as Pantera then? They were, but they just did at some. So after that, it sounds era, like a metal band though. It, and it, yeah, it was. And then, but there's if you go back, everybody pretty much looks at them as a. This is a band that started with Cowboys from Hell. That's that came out in 1990. Mm-hmm. And if I go into my Apple Music right now, you're not going to find any of these old Pantera. Let's see, what are some old ones? Projects in the Jungle, I Am the Night, Metal Magic. Come on, oh dude, so bad. Um, so the same group that was doing hair metal does walk does walk they do a they do a a turn an artistic turn starting with cowboys from hell and they're just like all right we need to we need to go heavy or we need to go heavier we need to go aggressive and that's really when they became pantera they were called pantera all these other glamish albums were pantera but 90 that's when they become the pantera that i wonder if they decided oh it would have been very easy in the 80s to go the glam metal route because that was making much similar to the bro country era that we hear now. I mean, what we hear on the radio now, it'd be so easy to sing a song like that, have those same themes. Here I am, and I'm going to be on country radio. It would have been the very same thing in the 80s with glam metal, hair metal, because it was so wildly popular. And there's so many bands where it would have been very easy to say, well, let's kind of deviate from what we normally are. And see if we can make some money doing this. I don't know if that's what they were thinking, but that would make sense to me. And then furthermore, it makes sense to where after they put out three or four albums, they said, this isn't us. Let's do what we want to do. And because the reason I, and this is just a theory, but the reason I say that is the Pantera that I know versus what you just described are night and day differences. It seems like the Mm -hmm. the group Pantera would hate groups like what they once were. Yeah. And maybe they do now. I don't know. Yeah. There's no... Again, I think I think the proof is in the pudding of if you go and look up there when they put out their greatest hits record, there was nothing from those 80s. Those 80s. Again, you go into my Apple Music now, 
there's none of those albums from the eighties exist. You can Google them. You can find the covers and the, the album covers and the track listing and all that. But I've never once seen any of those old ones in a record store. So. Wow. And I think that they just, they, they, they just decided that it was time to abandon the glam thing. And, you know, if you think about that point in time too, grunge is starting to, it's right around the corner. The glam thing's been going for the better part of a decade. Worn out. Worn out. They've done four albums in that style mm -hmm. and gone nowhere with it. And I think, I think they've been turned down by every major late record label at this point. And I think they've kind of had a, a moment of epiphany, kind of like you just described there of just saying, screw it. Let's just go heavier. Let's, yeah. let's play what we're feeling right now. Yeah. And, and it works. So all let's say, I would go back to the 94 tour. Um, there, by the way, I went on uh, setlist.com uh, or setlist.fm, I guess you'd say. And for a lot of these artists, I just looked up, all right, what's an average set list for this band or this artist in this year? And uh, that's been a great resource for me. So just looking at the set list for them in a 94 concert, a new level, strength beyond strength, use my third arm, walk, becoming, five minutes alone, domination, effing hostile we haven't decided if this is a family program or not so we'll go with effing hostile uh, i'm broken this love uh, one of the greatest metal song titles ever primal concrete sledge and the song sounds like the title yeah mouth for war their great cover mouth for of, war good jam uh their their cover of black sabbath's planet caravan which i loved and then they finished with uh cowboys from hell i'll tell you how good walk is and that's why i understand it's it's probably not my favorite of theirs i love it but I know why it's their signature song. So my wife went with me to see Metallica and she's not a God bless her. She was in for the, for the ride. We went for a whole weekend, saw them twice. Uh, Pantera was one of the openers and this is not her style. This is not her scene. Like right. it's an hour of, of Pantera music, very aggressive, very loud screaming. They played walk and walk was the first time they were, it was, it wasn't the last song, but it was close to the end. And that was the first time of the evening where there was this notable, noticeable, real big shift in energy in the in the stadium. We were at J World in Dallas. Yeah. And you really felt it. The crowd started moving and there was just an energy. And so my wife, who likes a lot of the the some of the bro country stuff we're talking about, after this was the biggest shocker of the whole weekend for me. She's like, I really like the Pantera song walk. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, is this the same woman that that's that that I'm going with to the Morgan Wallen concert next week? Uh, but it was even somebody that has no interest in that music, the kind of music whatsoever, hearing it live and then being part of that crowd. Yeah. There's something yeah. about being, and this doesn't have to be a metal show. This can be anything. It's just when that moment hits and you can kind of feel it. Oh man, if you could bottle up that feeling that it, that it, that hits the crowd when it's really ramping up live, it, you could you could be a billionaire if you could bottle up that yeah, feeling you could. and sell it. You could listen to a song on an album a handful of times and be eh. on it. You could hear the song live and it and you feel a different energy to it and you listen to it after that on the album significantly differently than you ever did before. You like it a lot more. 1,000%. Uh, it, 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 it works that way sometimes, I feel like, in movies as well um, or TV shows that you might like. There are plenty of songs that I was, eh, whatever, on from a band that I liked. Mm -hmm. that I was whatever on, and then it was used in a movie or I went to a show and it hit me a certain way in a show and I loved listening to that song so much more after than I ever did before. It's weird how that happened. That probably happened with her on that one it, it did there's so many i'm trying to think of because i have had that what you just described has happened to me 
I feel like it's happened a thousand times because yeah. I've gone to so many shows over the years. Again, of all different genres. Oh, I'm trying to think what is the first one that that comes to mind where I knew the song, liked it, or was kind of eh on it, and then heard the artist play it live, and it. Um, all right, I don't know. This is not the greatest example, but it's just one that comes to mind. Uh, so I am like you, or I believe like you, am a massive, or I'm a huge Ryan Bingham fan. Uh -huh. So I saw him a couple, this is pre-COVID, so we're going back eh, about four years or so from the time of us taping this. At the time, he was on his tour supporting uh, American Love Song. Great album. He opened with the second track on the American Love Song album, Nothing Holds Me Down. I had listened to it. By the point we went to see him, I was I was loving the album American Love Song. Really digging it. Um, still do. Four years later, it holds up. That track was one that, because I'll be honest, when I first got the album, tracks one, Jingle and Go, and track three, Pontiac. Yeah. Pontiac in particular. Those two were my jams yeah. that I initially was listening to. And I would just kind of like, yeah, I'd get a few bars and nothing holds me down. That, all right, hit next to go to Pontiac. He opened with he opened nothing the show holds with it. Yep. And... Damn, every time I hear it now, man, it pumps me up. Yeah. Like it, it, it electrified me. Yeah. So, and I can still, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I'm starting to get goosebumps just thinking about that. Like we were in that theater in Chattanooga where we saw him and the lights go down and then there's the, kind of the build up to it and the band comes out and starts playing that song. And then he walks out separately and launches into it. And I'm like, uh, it, it's, it's a funny thing. I don't know why that happens, but it does. It does. It happens. Hell, it probably happens almost every show. All the man. time. Yeah. All the time. I remember one that jumps out off the page to me. Uh, I'm a kid. I was so excited to get um, Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion when yeah. it came out. Double album. And there are a bunch of songs on there that I really liked. Um, you Could Be Mine. Wasn't a big fan. I thought this song's kind of whatever. And then I saw Terminator 2. <laughs> and it was used in Terminator 2. And I loved the song right after that. I was jamming it, you know, on the way at school and things like that. That's the earliest example that I can remember, but it's happened over and over and over and over again. And it'll, you're right. It'll happen every single show. You and I were just at a George Strait show mm -hmm. here in the last few, that was a little bit over a week ago. And there are songs from that show that I had, I, I didn't have a problem with any song before. I mean, it, George Strait's got a billion songs. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them are outstanding. Some you might skip over. Um, I Got a Car is a song that when he played it live, like, God, that hits me. <laughs> yeah. I never really had a, I didn't dislike the song, but it was whatever before. But when he played that song live, that was the song on that show that did it for me. And and I'm there with my girlfriend and I was like, this is just, what a great song. Yeah. Um, but that happens at concerts and movies and shows and it's interesting how they kind of uncover a song for you that have been there for you all along. Yeah, something about the live music experience just turns it on. Or the to your point, the like a movie, a scene in a movie, a scene in a TV show. Yeah, uh, can just either turn a turn you onto a song that you weren't aware of at all before, or puts a completely different spin or perspective on one that you had heard before. But all of a sudden, it's it's just taken on this whole new meaning and you have a different feeling now when you hear mm -hmm. it than you did previously mm -hmm. it's a i don't even know if there's if somebody out there has come up with a term or anything there the yeehaw junction effect there it is it's the yeehaw junction effect right, i'm gonna <laughs> write that down because we're gonna i can 
The next 11 episodes, that's going to come right. back. Yeehaw Junction Effect. That's right. All right. That's I right. Like all right. So we're, all right, we've done, uh, that was my. Uh, was your second one? Yes. Yeah, so that was number 10, counting down from 11 on mine. So what you got? All right. And, and like I said, I'm kind of going in chronological order here. I'm going to go sure. way back. Um, similar to what I mentioned with country music, there's a before and after that I would have liked to have seen. And I don't know. This is. Not necessarily a show that I would have to see, I don't suppose. Uh, I'm from Mississippi. I grew up, I, I love blues music. I love uh, old school blues music. There are so many great blues musicians from my home state with Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf and John Lee Hooker and B.B. King. Uh, a long list of great Sunhouse, so many great ones. Robert Johnson is the king of the blues. Mm-hmm. Robert Johnson has so many legendary stories around him, and there are so many other uh, blues musicians after him who always referenced him. And I always wanted to know what in the world happened. So here's my before and after. I would like to hear him before and after the supposed visit to the crossroads. Nice. I'd like to know how much of a change actually took place. Um, then I'd like to see him right after that and see how much he actually improved. Uh, Sunhouse, I mentioned him, blues legend. He once said that Robert Johnson went from a bad guitarist to a master in less than two years. You and I both play guitar. Yeah. Um, we're not exceptional by any means. We can stroke some chords. I can listen to a song. I can probably mimic the song, chords, that kind of thing. It is not easy to take a guitar and be a bad guitar player and then within two years' time be a master, not be good, be a master. Those are the words that Sunhouse used. So there's this legend of going to the crossroads and selling his soul to the devil and all this other crazy stuff, which is a great story, especially for blues music. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and rock, of course, is, is um, the, for, for lots of rock music, the ancestor of rock music is bl- old blues music, Delta blues music. And, and I just think it's a fascinating story that whether it's true or whether it isn't, then who knows? I've always been a believer that the harder you work, the luckier you are get. And who's to say that Robert Johnson didn't just go work his tail off and do nothing but play, uh, nothing but watch other guitarists mimic them. And maybe he just was a um, maybe he was a mastermind musically that people didn't know much about. And he just uh, took off. I don't know. But I'd like to see it for myself, the before and after, to see how much progress he actually made before the supposed legendary visit to the crossroads that'd be one for me i always think did you ever see uh, oh brother where art thou i did uh, i i love oh brother where art thou it's a great coen brothers movie um and i i don't know i've never really looked it up but i always i assume that the the character of tommy and oh brother where art thou yeah. is based on robert it's Johnson, robert because he, he sells his soul yeah to, to play the guitar yeah uh, that's one i'm gonna uh, to borrow i'm gonna borrow you know what i'm you're going before and after I'm going to take a, a page out of your book from your first choice. I'm going to pull up a chair and sit there at the crossroads. Like, not <laughs> be midnight? Seeing, I want to see what the hell happened. Yeah. Out there. We're going to set up a duck blind about midnight at the crossroads, <laughs> yeah. right outside of Clarksdale. That's where I'm headed. I want to see <laughs> what happened here. Let's let's just. Oh, you know, two th- one of two things would happen: either nothing, or you'd piss your pants because <laughs> yeah, what you yeah. just saw. I don't know. It'd be it haunt you for the rest of your days. My ass would be back in my time machine. <laughs> yeah. Get out of there. Go now. <laughs> we got to get out of here. Hit, hit 88, Doc. Let's get out of here. <laughs> uh, uh, That's a good I, one. How iconic the the picture of Robert Johnson, the one picture that I mm-hmm. I don't even know if any others exist. Maybe they do, but that one picture, how iconic is it's that? So it's, good. And it's like it's in it's, any. It's, like, it's kind of haunting. In a it way is. Too, right? It is. And, and it's been 
I've, I've seen that picture in so many different barbecue joints, yeah. so many different juke joints. Um, you know, last, last November, I went to Clarksdale with a buddy of mine. He's also a big blues guy. And we went to Ground Zero, Morgan Freeman's Blues Club in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, and they've got the Crossroads sign just right on down the road there. But you go in there and you see that same picture and there's so much history there. But any place you go who, you know, they've... No, they're worth their salt and blues history and such. Everybody's got that photo, it's an iconic photo. Yeah, when I took, um, I learned to play guitar. I was in college. I'd had a guitar for a while. I never didn't have the drive, not drive, but discipline to like make myself do it. So finally, by the time I got to college, I was like, I got this guitar. I was like, I got to learn how to play guitar. And mm-hmm. I was just not doing it myself. And this is you and I went to school. This is pre-YouTube days and yeah. internet existed, but I don't know how many good resources there were for teaching yourself and all. And I, for stuff like that, I need a teacher at least to help get me started. Right. Show me what to do. So I found a guy, took some lessons from him for a year or two, and he helped me get started. And again, like you said earlier, I'm not a great guitar player. I, as I, my line, my standard line is I know just enough about playing guitar to mess up some really great songs <laughs> so but one of the posters the guy he would uh, that i got lessons from that was what he did full-time he, he taught guitar yeah uh, his name was rob and he it's funny he just randomly showed up on my suggested friends on facebook the other day and he's got to be in his 70s by now but he looks the same as he did 20 years ago i took lessons from him he looks like a member of he looks like um barry gibb in the 70s <laughs> like black hair and the beard yeah uh, but he would you would go in uh for lessons he had a room in his house and that was his guitar room where you would actually go in for the lesson and then he had a little like uh not what's the word i'm looking for entryway foyer type deal small little room you walk around to the back of his house and you would enter and then while you're waiting for the previous person's lesson to to finish you would sit in this room and wait and he had posters up in that room um, of some of his favorites. And the two that he had were Stevie Ray Vaughan and the Robert Johnson. Oh, that's friends. awesome. So every week when I would sit there and wait for my turn, one o'clock on Fridays, I would wait and uh, sit there and look at that that poster of Stevie and that poster of, uh, of Robert Johnson. It's the week. kind of photo where even if you know nothing about who's in that photo, you want to learn about that photo. Yep, absolutely. He's sitting there in his, in his hat and his suit and yeah. smiling and kind of really big eyes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I, here's one that, okay, this is one that I, there were three on my list that I felt 100% confident are going to be on yours. All right. This is the fourth one that I, I'm halfway on. Um, hopping in my time machine, I'm headed back to 1979, and I'm going to see Waylon. I'm going to see Waylon Jennings. I'm right there with we have the we have the year off, but the same artist. Did you say if you say 1980, I'm going to be mad at myself? No, no, no. You said no. 70. Okay, all no. right, okay. What what I did was I, I said 72 to 78. I couldn't really pick okay. a year, okay. but go ahead and we can talk about why. All right, yeah. So I I wanted to go with 76 uh-huh. because that's the Waylon live album. Uh, and I could listen to that over and over and over again. Uh, that that version on the live album, and I don't know if it was on the original. It's on like if you're. Is this the one, is this the one in Austin, Texas, or just the one in? I think there's one in San Bernardino. Uh, this is here. Let me pull it up here. Um, don't you wish we could play? I think music it's. On I do. I do. 
somebody wants to sponsor us and pay those fees for us, right. we'll, we're, we're here for you. Yeah. It's the 76 album, which I believe was, because he starts, yeah, yeah, it's live in Texas. Yeah. Because that's right. It starts, starts with T for Texas. T for Texas. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the the version of, at least it's on the Apple Music version, the expanded versions, his version of Lonesome Henry and Mean, yeah. all that is like, that pumps me up so much. I had to go with a couple years later for one very specific reason. Well, one very specific song that if I'm going back to see Waylon, there's two songs I have to hear. I got to hear, are you sure I ain't done it this way? Mm -hmm. And I have to hear Clyde because yeah. so you and I work in baseball. It's like a fun question. People talk about like, well, if you were a baseball player, what would your walk up music be? Mine or I'm like, well, it'd be for whom the bell tolls by Metallica or it'd be Clyde by Waylon Jennings just because, I just love that song. So great opening riff. It's just, it's so good. It gets, yeah. it's, it's, it's maybe the one country song that fires me up and only country song that can also fire me up in the way that like a hard rock or metal song can. Don't get me wrong. I get, I love listening to like real country and it gives me, it gets my, like my engine running gets me, gets me in my heart. Like I love it. But like, it's like when you're like, when you're wanting to go to the gym Kind yeah, of like I need yeah. that kind of adrenaline, like adrenaline rush. Like that adrenaline rush. Clyde is maybe the one country song that gives me the kind of that same equal level that yeah. a, that a hard rock or metal song can. It just that riff, that opening riff is just so good. And then the not even chorus, the chorus is is instrumental, really, if you think about yeah. it. Yeah, um, the bass. The bass leads the, the song. The bass leads the song, and it's so good. So, and that song didn't come out till on an album. I don't believe until 1980 on Music Man. But I went back and did some digging. I found a set list from Waylon at the Cotton Bowl. And oh, man. Let's see. It looks like October 15th, 1979. Here, I'm going to run through. Uh, there's 17 songs here. I'm just going to run through this real quick. Only Daddy Little Walk the Line. Ladies Love Outlaws. Way More is Blues. Great song. George Strait covered that, actually, when we saw him. Uh, Amanda, You Asked Me To. Willie the Wandering Gypsy and Me. Let's Help All the Cowboys. Slow, Rolling Low. Me and Bobby McGee. This time, Midnight Rider, Rider, Rainy Day Woman, Bob Wills is still the king, and then these four to end it: Good Hearted Woman, Clyde. Are you sure Hank done it this way? And then Ramblin' Man. Man. So I I, I want to see him in the same time frame that you did, but just specifically so I could hear Clyde, I had to bump it up to to seventy nine. Did you know? And I'd imagine this is from. This is another band that we'll have on both of our lists. I feel safe in this. Okay. I'm pretty sure the same guy who wrote Clyde wrote Call Me the Breeze. J.J. Kale? Yes. Really? I he think wrote Clyde. Look that up. You know what? It says right here on this on the, the set list website, Clyde is listed as a J.J. Yeah. Kale cover. I'll be damned. I just that? learned something. Isn't that cool? As, that is why I, I had this list up. I looked at it, and I neglected. I looked right over the subtitle there where it says JJ Kale cover. That is very, cool. very cool. I love looking up the song, right? That's something that I've, I've come to do the last two or three years. Uh, Apple music. And I'm sure other music sites that will do this. You know, you can click on the bottom left button. It'll show you the lyrics. Mm -hmm. You scroll to the bottom and it'll show you the songwriter for every song. Right. And I've gotten in such a habit of hearing a song who wrote this song. And, and it's so cool. The spider web that is, of guys who wrote songs like, I can't believe this guy wrote both of these songs. Yeah. And that's one that I came across maybe in August during the season, but it was from the other side. It was, I was listening to Skinner huh. and it's like JJ Kale. And I looked this guy up and I'm like, 
he wrote a Waylon Jennings song. And I just kind of did that backtrack, I guess you might say. But that's so much fun to look up guys who, who are songwriters. Uh, you know, because Waylon, he, he wrote some songs. He wrote some really good songs. He didn't write all his music. Right. And it's fun to look up songs by an artist that you are high on and see who wrote some of their music. And uh, that's, a, that's a good one. Interesting that somebody, that two artists that we both love of kind of different genres. Yeah. Although Skinner and Waylon aren't exactly, you know, Pantera and Lady Gaga different, but <laughs> they're, they're much more in the same Very universe. Very similar in spirit. Sure, sure. There's no doubt yeah. about that. Waylon, by the way, um, I talked about being what I was raised on. My dad's all-time favorite and hero, Waylon yeah. Jennings. So I was, I was raised around that. Do you think he's the first artist that you knew who he was? No, actually, you know what? The first one who I knew who he was was my first, like, uh, musician that I was, I say obsessed with as obsessed as a seven or eight year old kid can be yeah. was, that I, is my first ever concert too, actually, which we'll, we'll get into that in a future episode, but country singer who was popular at the time, Ricky Van Shelton. Nice. That was for whatever reason, that was the first one where I was like aware of who the person was. And it was because I, I just liked his music. Plus mm -hmm. he, I was seven years old and he had, and he and I were both named Ricky. So you know, and he was from Virginia. And I yeah. was from Virginia. He had a lot so, in common. They had a lot in common, but that was probably the first one. I'm sure I heard dad talk about Waylon. To this day, me and my sisters, because my dad would do this, like, if you even start talking about Waylon at all, he is inevitably just going to go, whoop, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> you bring up Waylon around daddy, going to go, whoop, whoop. Like, That's awesome. And so we, me and my sister still do, and they've grown to, they also, they love country music. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, that's a masked, well, mass thing. Whoop, whoop. I bet there are lots of guys around our age who would have discovered Waylon the same way. My, my parents didn't listen to every, all the music that I listened to. My mom is very musical, but it was more gospel and church music. I probably got my love for music from my mom. I certainly didn't get it from my dad. Uh, but probably for my mom, but it made me very interested, exploratory, et cetera, in learning different music and music songs and things like that. But the first introduction I ever had to Waylon Jennings, Balladeer, Dukes of Hazard. Oh, yeah. That was my favorite. Like, because you don't see his face. Right. It's the guitar, and he's strumming at the beginning on the opening of, of the show. And I loved the show. I mean, when I was a kid, I watched that. Was, if it's on, I'm watching the Duke Boys. And that's what I grew up on that and like that and a team and Knight Rider. But the balladeer with the black and white leather guitar was like, this guy's awesome. This song's great. And then I learned who he is and I've been hooked ever since. That's one of those things. If I ever reach a point of, of an immense amount of disposable income, that's one of the things I think I would spurge. If that could, if, if one of Waylon's OG, like the, the, the black and white leather mm -hmm. guitar ever went up for auction it's like that that meme you see go around the internet sometimes like if i ever win the lottery i won't tell anybody but there will be signs yeah and then there's a picture of something ridiculous that they bought they bought with it yep that would be one of the things i the the guitars i would would attempt to buy anyways just to have that one that one is on my my mount rushmore be so recognizable it's just you instantly see that and you know what it is one of the most random, I don't know if this ad pops up in your Instagram. This has got to be one of the most random collaborations as far as a, a retail item that there is that I've ever seen, but it pops up. It's been popping up a lot here lately. It is the Waylon Jennings uh, inspired Patrick Ewing shoes. I've seen, Have you that. seen that. I've seen it one time. <laughs> okay. <All right. laughs> Who would buy this? <laughs> 
I mean, you're, you're kind of taking, I don't, I think the people who are really big Patrick Ewing fans might not be big Waylon Jennings fans and vice versa, but they've somehow melded these two things together. And I saw it one time in a pop-up and I was flipping through it. And I thought, and it was gone. Yeah. And I thought, did I just see what I think I saw? And I did. I don't necessarily want to buy the shoes, but I am very interested to talk <laughs> to the people who who dreamt this up. Tell me about this project. I like. I got. If I can get them, I'll be like, look, I got an hour, hour and a half. To you, tell me. I want to hear about this. Yeah. How did this come about? Google so, that. Yeah. You know, if you're listening to this, Google so, that. So that does. Yeah. So, so here's here's where I go with this. I, I've got Waylon, and I couldn't peg one year, but seventy two to seventy eight, and and the reason is for me, this is really peak outlaw era, which is my favorite era of any musical genre, not just country and Western music of any musical genre. Um, Waylon, like I mean, he wrote some classics. He wrote um, outlaw bit. He wrote, I've always been crazy. He wrote looking for a feeling. And are you sure Hank done it this way? He wrote this time. Um, but at the same time, he did some songs written by people you would never even imagine. He did. I mean, he did Roger Miller songs. He did some Willie Nelson songs. He did songs that Shel Silver, Silverstein wrote, really? who did the the children's book yeah. writer, where the, uh, where the the Giving Tree, where the what was the book? Is it where the sidewalk ends? The collection of poems that Shel that which sounds is right. Also, a George Strait name of a George Strait song on uh, the Pure Country soundtrack. But I think, but anyways, yeah. go ahead. Sorry, but he Shel Silverstein wrote um, a boy named Sue that Johnny Cash sang. That was Shel Silverstein. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Um, he wrote multiple songs. I'm trying to remember exactly. I'm trying to remember the song. I know he did at least one. Well, you could Google this. All right. Uh, at least one or two Waylon Jennings songs, but he wrote songs. So I, I've. it's fascinating to me the different song writers that Waylon used. Obviously, he used... Chris Christopherson songs and Chris might be my favorite songwriter of all time. He did an entire album, Waylon did, of pretty much all Billy Joe Shaver songs. Um, the, the album where they're all hanging out, I, I can't remember the name of it. It's uh, Slow Rolling Low and Black Rose and all that. That's all Billy Joe Shaver. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's one song on that entire album that was not written by Billy Joe Shaver. But to me, th this was peak outlaw era Waylon. This set him on a different path. He was in his late 30s. And if you look at pictures of Waylon, or Willie Nelson for that matter, um, in, in, in seven, eight years earlier in the 60s, Waylon had, and obviously, as you know, he was, he was playing with Buddy Holly in the crickets mm -hmm. and should have been on the plane that crashed in 59, but wasn't, swapped out his, his seat with Big Bopper, I think. I believe it was with the Big Bopper. Yeah. So... Uh, he goes on to have this career, and at the time, Waylon looked so polished compared to what we know him as now. I mean, it was a, we talk about ACDC being two different bands. You look at those old album yeah. covers and pictures of Waylon from pre-Outlaw, it's like a different person. Yeah, slick back hair, clean shit, handsome devil. There's no doubt about it. And he's got an album. It, it was his, it, He was doing almost like a, a residency, you might say, for lack of better words, at a place called JD's in Phoenix uh, or in Scottsdale. And the music that they were playing was very different from what Nashville was kind of becoming or, or uh, rhinestone suits and uh, nudie suits, all that stuff. Waylon's music was, was geared towards his live crowds. And if you listen to the Live at JD's album, it's a lot of cover stuff, um, but it's just 
you hear this voice and it's almost like a haunting voice and it's such a good voice. Yeah. It's so good. And you can tell that it's Waylon, but it's a different version of Waylon. And you could tell that there's just an overwhelming amount of talent there, but he goes to Nashville. Uh, it's not, I mean, it's working out, but maybe not the way that he wanted it to. And then the gloves come off and the Waylon that you see from 72 really on is more the outlaw spirit this is who I am. I don't give a damn about what you think. I don't give a damn about what everybody else is doing. I'm making the music that I want to make. And he wanted to make the music. He wanted his studio albums to sound like what they do live. That was his whole deal. And it was such a a step away from the mainstream of what was taking place at that time. And that was really the... Uh, that was really the spirit behind that entire movement, I feel. So while the Outlaw movement has so many different people in it, to me, he's the the forerunner of it all. And I know oh, yeah. that he had contributors along the way, and um, he and Willie's story are very similar. Willie gave up on Nashville, went back to Texas, and was playing locally in Austin and things like that. And he kind of had that same epiphany as well. But I, I love that we've done it your way, it didn't work for us. Now we're going to do it our way. And it worked. Isn't it interesting? The, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Like it's not rhinestone suits now, but it could be those, those trucks and beer songs we were talking yeah. about earlier. Yeah. Like there's it's 50 years ago. And I think a lot of the things that he was rebelling against and was, was talking about then still apply yeah. today. Yeah. No, I, I'm fully with you. He was the leader of that whole movement. There were other people certainly, but he was the guy and still is the guy. Yeah. He's been gone 20 years and he still is the guy. I remember when I went to the Country Music Hall of Fame. I've been twice now. Me and my wife went this last summer, but I went about 10 years ago, 2012. It was when the winter meetings, actually, there was when the winter meetings were in Nashville in 2012. I think it was the first time I actually met you in person. Uh, me and Ricardo, my buddy from uh, from California, mm-hmm. showed up to the MLB winter meetings to trying to find a job at the time. Right. Uh, but anyways, we had, we were there for a few days, had some time to kill, went to the country music hall of fame and I was excited to go. I was expecting to see a lot of Waylon Jennings stuff. And at that time there were two Waylon Jennings things that you could see at the, uh, at the country music hall of fame. There's a quote of his that's etched into the outside of the building. There's a few quotes. I think it's in it's, I think it's like Johnny cash, Waylon, Willie. I mean, it's the, the big, the big guns from the history of country music. Yeah. And then at the inside of that time, because if the Country Music Hall of Fame, if you've never been there, it's about, I think there's three stories uh, that you, and each story is, is a different level of the museum. Um, in the middle of like, there's like an open air. Imagine if you're at like at a double decker mall and you, you know, there's an open area. You look down, you can see there's a giant, they had a giant, giant picture of, of Waylon. And that was it. There was nothing else. There was no artifacts or anything like that. And I was like, I was so baffled by that. I left there going, how the hell is the country music hall of fame right. not have anything but a picture and a quote etched out into the book? Right. Well, I found out later on, Waylon got pissed that they didn't induct him like early enough or that he had some beef with them. So he said, screw you guys. I'm not donating <laughs> anything to this place. And, and so that was why. Yeah. So even up to the very end, he was just like, he was he was going to do things his way. And if he, if you did something he didn't like, you were going to know about it and he would that. probably sing about it. at some Yeah. Point. He was real. Before we move on from Waylon, the amount of covers, if you start going in, especially if you do a deep dive on his stuff, like all throughout his career, 
what was one I didn't I I didn't realize he did till the other day. Oh, uh, Fleetwood Mac, Gold Dust Woman. I, yeah, I had not yeah. heard that cover till the other day. I was listening to whichever album that's on, and and I like Fleetwood Mac, uh, and I like that song. I had not heard his version. Yeah, of I think it's on the Outlaws. Uh, is that what it's on? It originally? might be. Okay, it's got him and Willie and. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Well, it's, it's there's so many Waylon covers that are that are phenomenal. But okay, all right. This is this is the one Ben that I I hesitate to even say this on the microphone. But if I'm being honest and true, especially going back to when I was a kid and just artists that again, and I don't mean teenager kid. I mean literally. I'm not even a teenager yet, like a kid, and just listening to music and liked. Um, I would go back and I would, I would honestly want to see Michael Jackson in concert. Yeah. That's the one I'll spoiler. That's the one pop act that's on my list. I, this is, so my dad's listening to Waylon. My mom like had like Michael Jackson stuff on in the house. So, and to me, I can still listen to off the wall, thriller, bad or dangerous. And I'm, I, I still enjoy it. And just the spectacle of seeing somebody that was that famous. Now, uh, I was a fan as a kid. Glad I didn't meet him as a kid. But, <laughs> but, but, but um, the level of that level of fame, I feel like has only, at least in the, the course of recorded human history, has only been, there's only a few people who have ever gotten to that level of fame. Yeah. Elvis, probably. Yeah. Michael Jackson. I, beyond that, I mean, I guess if you want to throw some presidents in there, notable political figures, but... Just the spectacle the of the, the Beatles. Yeah. Um, but I would. I would go as a kid. I, I loved Michael Jackson, loved those albums. And there was uh, like an HBO special from the 92 tour, I think, that was live in Bucharest that I loved that as a kid. And if I'm just being honest, yeah, I, I, I have to be true to the nine, 10 year old me that loved that those those albums and seeing like seeing the like I think I had a VHS tape that had like a Michael Jackson VHS tape that had him doing the moonwalk for the first time on Motown 25. Yeah. yeah. And the innovation and in music videos that happened. And then the, just the everything. And then, and really just, I, I now I would say regardless of your feelings of Michael Jackson, whether you like that kind of music or not, I think that those classic albums, like you put on thriller, you might like it, you might not, but it holds up. Yeah. It just does. It's just such a prodigy. It, it's just so a, much talent yeah. at such a young age. I think I think a lot of that led to the issues that he had. I don't think there's any doubt. And then his dad was psychotic maniac. Oh, there's yeah. no doubt about that. Uh, I mean, some of the stories you read about the things that he would do to try to make sure that Michael's voice didn't change is just horrifying. It is. But just, um, I've, I think when it comes to Michael Jackson and Prince, two of the most incredibly talented musicians I've ever seen. Prince to me might be the most talented musician I've ever seen just because of what he could do with a guitar plus sing plus write plus dance. Um, I would agree with unbelievable. that. Unbelievable. He was unbelievable. Just the guitar playing by itself. If you just yeah. took that as the one thing, and that's probably the thing with Prince that gets lost a little bit sometimes sure. by most people is they don't appreciate what an amazing guitarist he was. There's the the video of him at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Ceremony. My guitar gently weeps. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You and he get, just tosses it, and the guitar disappears at the end of the song. And it's just. I mean, he's on that stage with. I mean, like best Petty, Lynn. Uh, who else was there? Oh gosh, was Springsteen um, up there? I don't know if Springsteen. Maybe so. But maybe one of the Beatles was there. That sounds right. Maybe I don't know. But it was a bunch of heavy hitters. Up yeah. There. 
and he was the one standing out yeah. with the guitar. So uh, Prince was made my honorable mentions list. Like, yeah, Prince, was, to me, Prince and Michael Jackson, I, don't, I hate to say they go hand in. I love the story about Prince um, being invited to be on the, um, oh, what song was it? Oh, yeah. It was, um, there I'm was, Bad. He, he was asked to be on Bad. Yeah. That was going to be a duet with Michael Jackson, almost like a versus, Prince and Michael Jackson. And as the story that I remember goes, Prince reads the opening lyric, which it says, your butt is mine, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't that how the song begins? That is not Michael's finest work. That That, that, is, that is the first line. And, that line and Prince, Prince says, I know I'm not saying that to you. <laughs> and you sure as hell ain't saying it to me. And that ended... Prince being added on bad. And there went the duet. And there, yeah, there went the duet. So we gained all Michael Jackson. But I, I'm I'm mesmerized anytime I hear Jackson 5 and hear a 10-year-old Michael Jackson make the sounds that he was making, sing the way that he did. Well, and that's part of the reason why I would choose, uh, I chose specifically the 92 tour because at that time he's playing or he's singing stuff from the four solo albums that I still like and enjoy listening to as well as at that time he was doing a medley of the best of the Jackson five stuff. Yeah. So you get to hear, you know, I want you back, uh, stop the love you say, like you get to hear that stuff. Yeah. That's, I feel like there's a lot of Motown era stuff. That's just like, so good. it just, it doesn't even matter who, which one, which artist it is. If it's just one of those artists from Motown, that comes on. I'm, yeah. I'm going to enjoy it every single time. I had a buddy who DJed weddings. This is back in the day. And I remember having a conversation with him one time and I said, uh, these weddings, I mean, I'm sure some are just off the charts party. Some of them, maybe it's a little bit challenging. He's like, yeah, but we've got a, a method for that. I said, really? So what? I said, I don't care the crowd. I don't care how old, how young, what race the people are. It doesn't matter. If you play Michael Jackson, butts hit the dance floor. Oh yeah. And I've never forgot that. And it's so true. You could be at a sporting event, uh, wherever you may be, Play Michael Jackson and people are into it. So one of my, I've I got married this year. I had two co-best men, Will and Tyler, and we've all been best men in each other's weddings. So the first of the three of us to get married was Will. He got married June 27th, 2009. I can remember the date because that's my birthday. So that became the joke was that Will and his wife, Nicole, were uh, throwing this big birthday party for me. And they were just going to happen to get married while they were there. <laughs> Uh, Michael Jackson died two days before the wedding, I believe it was. I believe it was a Thursday, so that 25th, I'm going to say. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, at the earliest Wednesday, the 24th, but it was that that weekend. I so, think it was the 25th. Yeah. So they were. So he dies uh, two days before the wedding, so then fast forward to Saturday, and that DJ, if he wasn't already going to play some Michael Jackson, I mean, he was, uh, he was playing all the hits, and the yeah. crowd at this wedding was way into it because it was a celebration. Michael had just passed, and everybody was that much more amped to like, hey, get out here and dance to like, don't stop till you get enough. It's funny you said butts hit the floor because one, one of our buddies who was in the wedding, uh, there was a like a circle formed, and people were like dancing in the circle. He comes trotting out to the middle of the circle, and not realizing somebody just spilled a little bit of a drink, <laughs> and feet came flying out from under him. And I kid you not, Ben, his butt literally did hit the floor <laughs> while listening to Michael Jackson at a wedding. So it's so funny. As soon as you said that, I'm like, yeah. I have a story that, that nails that. It exact literally sense. happens. Yeah. Just yes. like that. Yeah. So it's that is a wedding part, like a general, like a party of mixture of people like that. Michael, yeah. it's, a, it's a go to. It, yeah. it is. All right. Well, we've moved on from my one where I was I was a little timid to share. No, I like that. One. Now we can move I like on. that one. Yeah. All right. Let me go ahead and just knock one out that I know we'll both have on okay. our list. 
Um, let's go directly to Rolling Stones. And I know you might have done a better job of picking a specific year than I did. I went with an era, 69-74 Rolling Stones. This is Mick Taylor years. Um, that's Let It Bleed. That's Sticky Fingers. That's Exile on Main Street. Um, that's Goat's Head Soup. And that is It's Only Rock and Roll. Those are the five albums they put out in that span. Some decent ones in there. Not bad. Yeah. A couple of bangers in there. Um, other albums in the Ronnie Wood or uh, the Brian Jones eras. Classic stuff. Love it. No doubt. Even to this day, you mentioned Hackney Diamonds that just came out here in the last few weeks. I'm, Tremendous I, stuff. It's, it's been out two weeks as of us recording this. I'm loving it. Yeah. It's great. These guys are 80 years old and they're still putting out... It's a Stones album. Still sounds like a Stones uh -huh. album, and I still want to listen to it. Yeah. It's great. Yep. So there are plenty of Stones albums with Ronnie Wood on them playing guitar that I'm way in on. Um, love it. Um, to me, those, those this era, the 69 to 74, the, the Mick Taylor years, this embodies to me the full extent of the Stones. Those albums, those songs... They are so good. They're so different, I feel, but they are rock and roll. To me, it is it is the, the structural foundation of what rock and roll is supposed to be. And it, it's you'll hear different songs on those albums, and then you'll hear a song like Can't You Hear Me Knocking? Mm -hmm. And they play this seven-minute just... Um, I don't know. Just do, They just play. There's, yeah. no, there's no... It's just instrumental. They finish the song. They, they, the... Uh, mixed parts done, so all the lyrics are finished, but they just play and they play and they play and it goes on and on and on and it's so good. And I don't, nobody else was really, nobody did that like that. I mean, I know that there are other albums or other, you you, you have um, Zeppelin albums and things like that that kind of do that and play long songs, but nothing quite like that. Uh, to me, that it just stands out so much and I just love the diversity of the band and I think that the combination of Keith Richards and Mick Taylor as the two guitarists, um, along with, with Mick Jagger, obviously, in his lead. To me, those three, I don't want to take anything away from anybody else in the band and Bill Wyman. And, um, I, I, just, I just feel like those two guitarists were at their peaks with not just how they play, but also creativity mm -hmm. i thought creatively they were just so so good in that era and um i would choose a stone show in that era with that lineup and um go from there so yeah they were and again the the my the order i put these in it, they, you could switch them around they they were ended up at number four uh on my list they're on there 1972, same era, yeah, same yeah. reasons. I want to see Mick Taylor. I love Ronnie Wood. Yep. Um, I, I no disrespect there, but that that lineup of of Mick Keefe, uh, <laughs> Charlie, and uh, Mick Taylor. The the well, let me react to a couple of things because there's there. This is why we're doing this podcast because we're so similar in some of these ways. First of all, I want to dive into. I just happened to read up on. The other day, while researching this podcast, that led me down the rabbit hole. I listened to Can't You Hear Me Knocking, and I wanted to read up a little bit more on that song. And so the the jam that you're talking about there, so this was what I'd found from, from Keith Richards. I think 2002 he said this. The jam at the end wasn't inspired by Carlos Santana or anything like that. We didn't even know they were still taping. We thought we'd finished. 
we were just rambling and they kept the tape rolling. Come on. I figured we'd just fade it off. It was only when we heard the playback that we realized, oh, they kept it going. Basically, we realized we had two bits of music. There's the song and there's the jam. So they weren't really playing that with the intent of this is going to be a seven minute long song I did not know jam. That. According to something Keith said back in 2002, that was, yeah, and then here we go, Mick Taylor in a 1979 interview. Uh, the jam at the end just happened by accident that was never planned. Uh, towards the end of the song, I just felt like carrying on playing. Everybody was putting their instruments down, but the tape was still rolling and it sounded good. So everybody. This quickly, is Keith saying this? This is Mick Taylor. Okay. In 1979, he said this. But the tape was still rolling and it sounded good. So everybody quickly picked up their instruments again and carried on playing. It just happened. And it was a one take thing. A lot of people you, you have really horns on this. That's <laughs> just yeah. it's everybody. It's everybody. Yeah. And it's phenomenal. And it wasn't even planned. They just did it. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I had no idea. I just fell down that rabbit hole the other day while recent while trying to decide what era of stones and everything I was going to see. So I, I went with 72. So I'll give you a couple things here. Uh, average set list. I, again, I really much enjoyed finding this little this site that has the an average set list for an artist in any given year. This set list, I'm going to read the whole thing. Brown Sugar, Bitch, Rocks Off, Gimme Shelter, Happy, Tumbling Dice, Love and Vain Blues, a Robert Johnson uh -huh. cover, Sweet Virginia, You Can't Always Get What You Want, All Down the Line, Midnight Rambler, Bye Bye Johnny, just Chuck Berry cover, Rip This Joint, Jumping Jack Flash, Honky Tonk Women, and Street Fighting Man. And that was a, a 72, average 72 set list. I know now on Apple Music, there's the, uh, I've been listening to it a lot this week, actually. It's, the late, it's called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones. And it's from that tour that that year, I believe, was when it was recorded. So if you, if you want a taste of kind of the air we're talking about and you haven't heard it or you want to dive right into it, I would suggest that, that album, Ladies and Gentlemen, Rolling Stones. I would take it, I said 72, I would go a little more specific. I want to go to the Rolling Stones American Tour of 1972. So the official name was the Rolling Stones American Tour 1972. It was also known as the Stones Touring Party, which was later shortened to STP. Huh. Much publicized and much, I'm just on Wikipedia now, much publicized and much written about concert tour of the United States and Canada in June and July of 1972 by the Rolling Stones. Uh, constituting the band's first performances in the U.S. following the Altamont disaster yeah, yeah. in December of 69. Let me just dive right in. So this tour lasted not even a full two months. Oh, by the way, the opening act was Stevie Wonder. So if you went to one of these shows, you also got to see Stevie, Stevie Wonder. Wonder and the Stones. Yeah, yeah, you also got to see Stevie Wonder open. So let's see. On the first show of the tour, June 3rd, Vancouver, uh, 31 policemen were treated for injuries when more than 2,000 fans attempted to crash the Pacific Coliseum. Oh, man. Ten days later, in San Diego, 60 arrests and 15 injured during disturbances, is all, it's, <laughs> is all it's said. The next day in Tucson, 14th of June, an attempt by 300 youths, it's, it says here, to storm the gates led to police using tear gas. Uh, two days later in Denver, <laughs> just, this is such a sentence to even say out loud. On June 16th, after the Denver shows in a hotel suite, Stephen Stills and Keith Richards drew knives in an argument. <laughs> <laughs> While in Chicago for three appearances on June 19th and 20th, the group stayed at Hugh Hefner's original Playboy Mansion in the Gold Coast District. Now, I'm on the Wikipedia article about this tour. There's a little footnote because, you know, Wikipedia, so you have footnotes for all this stuff. The footnote is a link to the Rolling Stone, not the band, the magazine 
article that was written in 72 or whatever that details the stone stay in the playboy mansion for those couple of days and it's just wild this it's is just, mayhem it's just bizarre every tour stop not just one place or two every day yeah you know what? i'll keep going let's see we started on june 3rd ben we're now yeah we're almost to my birthday we're now to june 25th <laughs> what <laughs> uh, a month 81 people were arrested at the two sellout houston shows for mostly marijuana possession and other minor drug offenses then on the 4th of july there were 61 arrests at rfk stadium uh and it just it just kept on going so a lot of arrests for just rowdy concert goers or concert goers that didn't have tickets they yeah. were trying to uh <laughs> okay screw whatever i'll say and here's the next one on july 17th at the montreal <laughs> at the montreal forum a bomb blew up in the stones equipment van and replacement gear had to be flown in <laughs> and then they discovered that 3,000 forged tickets had been sold for the same show causing a fan riot and late start to the concert they had more take place in about a 40-day span than most people have in 40 years of their life. One day later, <laughs> July 18th, the Stones' entourage got into a fight with the photographer Andy Dickerman in Rhode Island, and Jagger and Richards landed in jail. In Rhode Island. In Rhode Island, which put that night's show at the Boston Garden in peril. The mayor, Mayor Kevin White of Boston, fearful that a riot would happen if the show were canceled, intervened to bail Keith and Mick out. The show went on uh, with another late start. This was 72. This is June and July. This June 3rd, 1972 tour end. That's when it started. Tour ends July 26, 1972. So we're a little short of two full months. And it, it just goes on and on. Now, look, I, 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 I don't want to be part of a, I don't want to fly back in my time machine and be part of a riot or get trampled or get or bombed, or, get bombed yeah. or arrested or any of this other stuff. But I feel like, oh, and they're touring on Exile on Main Street by this point, too. I, I just feel like this is a sweet spot of, like, if you're wanting to just see the Stones when it was at the height of all things rock and roll. Yeah. That was my best. That was the sweetest spot I could find in the yeah. whole thing was that tour at that particular point in time. My gosh. And it's so good. Each one of those sentences I read, there's a footnote where you can then click and you can read on and on about that. It's, well, that's the thing. When you read that set list a little while ago. I'm hearing song after song after song after song after song, where each of those songs has a different story, has a di and and you've heard the stories. I, mean, I think about the Keith, and, and it's been the the joke for decades. How in the world Keith Richards is still alive? Right. And I love listening. Uh, man, I love listening to Keith. I mean, there you get different versions of Keith. You get you get the Keith that was inspired uh, by Chuck Berry. You get the one who was inspired by Graham Parsons. You get the so many different Keiths along the way. Um, but I just love these these albums in this period. Uh, I think about the Gimme Shelter uh, track with Mary Clayton. And I don't know if you've heard that story about Mary Clayton, the backup singer. I would imagine you have. I have. Um, where she, she basically has a miscarriage after singing her part on Gimme Shelter. She got a phone call, as the story goes, in the middle of the night, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And she was asked to come down to the studio. They needed, they wanted her to be a background singer on Gimme Shelter. And her, she's pregnant at the time. And her husband says, it's the Rolling Stones. You got to go do it. And in the middle of the night, she goes down there and sings her heart out. I mean, you can, listening to her background vocals on that song, some of the best background vocals you'll ever hear in your life. And she sang, as the story of she sang so hard, she miscarried uh, yeah. a short time later. It's just wild stuff. And what I'm getting at is, is, not that that's a happy story by any means, it isn't. But all these songs have 
unbelievable stories that accompany them. It's history. Yeah. And you and I are both the same in that I, we love, I mean, it's like, like we work in baseball, right? If you go down the rabbit hole of looking up this, some stats or a certain team, and then that leads you to a certain player, like, oh, I want to read more about that guy. And it leads you, one thing leads you to another. Right. It's the same. It's no, it's not a happy story. This is what happened, but that's what happened. Right. And it's, it's an, an all time classic song. An all-time vocal performance by her that we all know. Right. You, you don't like the Stones or whatever. You know Gimme Shelter, and you know what part we're talking about. Yep. And that just shows what was put into that performance. I mean, it, it it's it's not happy, but that's what happened. And all this is in that time period that we... It's all in there. that time period. It's, yeah. it's, it's not like this is early Stones in the mid-60s all the way up until modern day. This is in a small time period in the 69, what we say, 72 to... 69 to 74 is what I had. Mm -hmm. And you had 72. This, this is a five-year span of a band that's been doing this for 50 years or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, 60 years. 60 years. 60 that's years. right. When, we, when, when you and I and Kevin McAlpin went to see him, that was the the 60 tour, I believe. Yeah. 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 Amazing. On, still unreal. doing it, too. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and <laughs> you go back to the 60s, and their first one of their first guitarists dies after yeah. he was fired from the band. I mean, the stories go on and on and on. Well, I'll tell you what, since you we, we did one that we know, both knew was on the list, and you already brought this one up, so I'll, I'll bang this one out for me, All too. Right. And this was, again, I, I could could rearrange these in any order I want. I had this one as my number two slot, um, and it would be one or two. Um, and you, you brought them up earlier, Skinner. Yeah. Skinner is 100%. like the Stones. You and I, I think we'll get into this on, we're going to do an episode at some point in the, f the future, at least one, if not probably multiple about concerts mm -hmm. and first concerts and that kind of thing. And I know you and I both saw the same version of Skinner around 1999, mm -hmm. which was great. It was still enough of the original Skinner there that I felt like I'd seen a Skinner right. show. But if I could go back in time to 1977. It's the same year I have. 77. Yep. Give me that lineup of Skinner that's got Steve Gaines, yep. Alan Collins, of course, Gary, Ronnie, mm -hmm. Billy, Leon on bass. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess Artemis was Artemis Pyle. The he was drumming point. then, yeah. Uh, Bill Burns was, he was on the first album and a half? Something like that, yeah, yeah. Um, something, something like that. Yeah. But but mainly, you know, I was, um, I actually thought about if, if we were going to do a strict 10 and you could only do 10, I was possibly, I was thinking about cheating a little bit and I was going to take a time machine to the 1976 uh uh, Nebworth uh, Festival concert in England. There is, it's on Apple Bob Music. Burns, Bob Burns. Bob Burns, sorry. sorry. Yeah. Because um, I was going to say you could see Skinner uh, earlier in the day, and then you could see the Stones play an extremely long set to cap off. Yeah. Night. Yeah. And there's articles and stuff about that day and that performance, the 76 uh, Nebworth show. Recently, I found, I was looking at this week, there's video, and it's in Apple Music too. Video of most of Skinner's um, set from that day, and it is just so good. Watching, and they open up with with working for MCA, and you just see Alan Collins like he's got that Explorer, yeah, and he's got this like just rock and roll, all red like pants and shirt, and he does like a at the very first riff like kind of arches back and does like a full guitar slide, and it's just the most badass rock and roll looking thing, and like they're off and running, but. To see that band at that time with that lineup, to me, it's if we ever did an episode of the the biggest what ifs yeah. in music, that they might end up being the top of my list. Yeah. I just 
I will go back and watch the footage that exists of that band at that time. And it is, I find myself just wanting to be there so bad. I wish so badly I could have seen Ronnie Van Zant. Yeah. Um, and again, since I've been doing this exercise, here's a, here's a set list from 77. Working for MCA, I Ain't the One, Saturday Night Special, Whiskey Rock and Roller, uh, Traveling Man, That Smell, Ain't No Good Life, Give Me Three Steps, J.J. Kales, Call Me the yeah. Breeze, uh, T is for Texas, Sweet Home Alabama, and Freebird. But seeing them at the at the height, and I, I even though that concert, the Nebworth concert I, I brought up was 76, I had to go with 77 because by that point, Street Survivors was yeah, out. Was out. And 77, it's a brief moment in time before the plane crashes, but you get something from all of those five albums. Yeah. Uh, Pronounced Leonard Skinner, Second Helping, Nothing Fancy, Give Me Back My Bullets, Street Survivors. You got that band at their peak with choosing a set list from those five albums. Right. What the what, hell? Like, what, it, year, what, could go wrong? what year was their live album at the Fox in Atlanta? Uh, I want to say that was 75, okay. 74, but let me, let's see. Let's see. Um, it was, I'm sorry. It was, that was captured 76. Because I, I've listened to that album so many times and the set list that you just mentioned sounded so much like the, the recorded live album from mm -hmm. the Fox Theater in Atlanta. Um, it is. It's pretty close. Yeah, yeah. very close. I, I'm right. I chose the same year. Um, because of the Steve Gaines era, I feel like the band was so polished by then. And, and I love the Ed King years. Uh, those albums, those first two albums with Ed King were tremendous. I mean, I love giving back my bullets. Um, great, but it's, they've, you can read interview or listen to interviews and, and, and hear stories from that album. And so they're a little bit lost. Uh, they weren't the three guitar army that they wanted to be and they were looking for something i don't think they knew what that was but that came the answer came in steve Gaines. Mm -hmm. so you, you've got that lineup but there's something about the overall vibe once steve Gaines joined the band and, and you can hear that in these live albums because you hear ronnie's band introductions and he spends some time on steve as almost he's like i don't want to say a pet but he's like Here, here's our new thing like right. where, where you could hear the excitement in his voice for how good Steve Gaines was and what he could mean for Skinner moving forward. I mean, you hear uh, the duet that they sing, um, and, and it, it's so good. But there's something about the vibe of that era. It, it, it's as if they felt, like I said, lost before that, but um, maybe a tad directionless. They weren't performing. They weren't um, writing albums at Hell House uh, right. like they did the first two years. They weren't getting too... Uh, they weren't getting to play together and get ready for an album the way that they're used to doing it. It was kind of more just thrown together. Um, but when Steve joined the band, it's like there was a complete rejuvenation. And when you have him, he's just an amazing guitar player. Oh, yeah. Amazing. And throw him in there with Alan Collins and with Gary Rossington. And it's like not only did they have what they had with Ed King, but it was like this plus some. And it's almost like he was one of them. I don't think there was ever the thought that Ed King, as good as he was and as instrumental as he was, was one of them. Yeah. He's he, he was kind of, he was an outsider. Yeah, he was, he was. A strawberry alarm clock and all that stuff. Yep. And he was great. Um, and he had some really good stuff, but he wasn't Skinnered. As, and you can't force that. 
No. So I, I feel like there, there's no telling the heights that they might have achieved had it not been for the plane crash because of not only who the line who, who was in the lineup, but how those guys felt rejuvenated about that lineup, and you could just hear that in their performances. That's what I've I've been watching that Nebworth show over and over. First of all, whoever did the sound on it went back and mastered it. Sounds so good. They did such a great job with a show from 1976. But I can't stop watching them. Yeah, because it's one of those things like you and I, like we've listened to this band for most of our lives now, but it's having recently watched this show for the first time. I, it gave me an appreciation for, I've listened to them enough, seen them enough, listened to enough live shows over the years where I was watching this going, this band was at its absolute peak at this point. Yeah. They were, you, you said it polished. Yeah. They took the stage and they knew they were, they were damn good. And they took the stage knowing it. Mm hmm from the first note and they would have the crowd in the in fact I, you know, I mentioned I was uh, considering cheating and going to that one show where I got to see the Stones and Skinner in the same day one of the some of the articles and stuff I read about that show was how those were not the only two bands there were a few others uh, I think Todd Rundgren was one I forget the, some some others bang on the drum all night guy yeah <laughs> yeah. Uh, hello it's me yeah guy. yeah I think he was one of them don't quote me on that but I, I did read that from some concert reviews and stuff that Skinner had they played earlier in the day but if they were I think one guy wrote if they were on the verge of stardom before that day they became stars because they had the crowd and it was like 100 120,000 people and they had that crowd in their hands yeah on their hands uh so much so that I think that I, I don't know if this part is true but it may have also helped influence the the Stones to play a 28 song set later that <laughs> night that went from 11 30 p.m till 2 a.m that night but uh yeah, that's just uh, to well, be there, able to go back and see that band. There's uh, a mentality there, Rick, that I've I've heard, and, and this is in that Netflix special. Um, if I leave tomorrow, I think yeah. that's the name of it. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember if it's Artemis Pyle. I think it is. They had a lot of Artemis in there. They had a lot of Gary Rossington in there, and it was one of the two. But they were talking about opening for the Who. Mm -hmm. And they opened for, like you said, they opened for the Stones. They opened for so many big bands. But Ronnie told them, make no mistake, this is a competition. And we're here to raise the bar and blow the doors off of this place. We're not here just to, uh, you know, to play pretty good and get the, the crowd revved up and then bring on the who and they go crazy. This is a competition. And I love that. And, you know, I, I was not alive uh, at any point in Ronnie Van Zant's life. But the more I research him, hear his interviews, read his words, read his lyrics, there's so much that resonates. And, and I feel that way with, and I'm a very competitive person. I, I feel that way about our broadcasts. It's not enough for us to go on the air and bring our audience a Braves game. I want to be the best broadcast. And that's nothing against anybody else, another team, any uh, TV or radio broadcasters. That's just how I feel. And, and when I heard that and heard him uh, vocalize that, that, that idea, that sentiment, I, man, it resonated with me. Because they, they, like you said, they know they're good. Yeah. And we're going to show everybody how good we are. And I just love that. I love his attitude. Um, it's like Artemis said on that Netflix documentary. He's not up there just freaking dancing around and all right. this stuff. He's, he is planted on that stage, and he's bringing you his songs. Yeah. And I love that. I think it's such a great attitude. I, I love it. Too. I, you know, as a concert goer or a fan of music, 
I love the idea of it's a competition for those guys because that should mean that me as the concert goer, the consumer, I'm going to get that much better of a show. For yeah. Me. I mean, yeah. Simple as that sounds, selfish as that might sound, that is how I feel about it. Like, I want those bands going out the, on that stage going, to, we're going to be the best damn band that plays that right. these people see tonight. So good. And if they all have that mentality, then oh, man. that means the people out there are going to see a bunch of good bands. Yeah. It should be the way yeah. it is. So. That's right. That, uh, oh, yeah. The Skinner, Skinner in that 77, come on. That, that's amazing. All right. right, who you got? All right, here's I'm going to throw another one that I, I would imagine we'll have. Uh, we'll see if we match up on the year. Zeppelin. Of course. Uh, we have to knock out the titans of classic rock that we love. There's yep. so many great albums. I'm going Zeppelin 75. Okay. Uh, this would have allowed me to hear anything from Zeppelin 1, 2, and 3, and 4, as well as uh, Physical Graffiti, which came out in 75. So that also would have been on the table. So I'd have had 1 through 4 and Physical Graffiti. There are some YouTube videos that I've watched on Led Zeppelin playing at Madison Square Garden in the mid-70s, and it is a spectacle. Um, I mean, watching those guys do what they do, they were almost mystic uh, watching them on stage. And you and I got to see, uh, was it last year, we went to see Jason Bonham's Led Zeppelin experience, uh, John Bonham's son, who is just a tremendous, maybe the greatest drummer of all time, certainly a a, a trailblazer when it comes to drumming just power drums relentless and page and plant and uh john paul jones all if you hear a zeppelin album you get one lineup and when john bonham passes in 81 80 81 80 i believe they were done that's it there there wasn't and and uh it's interesting because we talk about acdc and how cool that was to almost discover one band before the other band because of Brian Johnson and, and Bon Scott. But there's also the, the other side of that too. That's really cool where it's Led Zeppelin was this lineup and without one of those guys, we're not Led Zeppelin. So we're done. Yeah. And, and there have been reunion tours. There's been page and plant and there's been uh, multiple other things. And uh, some of the bluegrass stuff, uh, oh, yeah, the, Robert, the, the, the Robert plants done. Yep. But as far as Zeppelin, this is it. Yeah. And uh, I, would have, I would have taken Zeppelin in 75 because those five albums, and I love their stuff from 75 to 80. I mean, there's some great stuff in there too. But the, that to me is peak Zeppelin. Well, we nailed our four because we, those are the four. Zeppelin obviously is on mine too. Uh, 73 is what I went with. So I did leave. I, I, I love physical graffiti, but I ended up, I went with 73 mainly because. That is when the song remains the same, the live album soundtrack of the movie. That's when that was filmed. And that's one of those things I've even the weird <laughs> asides with the band members like John Bonham's in a <clears throat> dragster and yeah, John Paul Jones is doing whatever the hell it is. John Paul, <laughs> whatever it is, they're all doing. Uh, even those weird parts, just the, the that that live soundtrack. I that's one got it on vinyl. That's one I can just sit there with my drink, cigar, it plays, I can just blast it and it's I can listen to it over and over again. You could I could go with 75 too. Yeah. That'd be fine. Yeah. Uh but I may have mainly chose it just because I because of the song remains the same. And I that performance, I that the first time I ever saw it, I don't know how many years ago that was, I was kind of awestruck by it. Yeah. And still am, many, many years later. So it's like if I could just go back and see that band. <clears throat> at that time would be amazing you know when they when they reunited for the one show the the charity show in 2007 with jason bonham as the drummer right i remember thinking like I, and it sounded like from everything that i read that everybody was 
except for Robert Plant was was willing to do at least a tour with that lineup. And I I kind of thought that that would have been. I thought they sounded great. They they put out an album with that performance. Yeah, and they those guys are about fifty nine sixty at that point. Still sounded great. Jason Bonham, as you and I saw it, is a great drummer. And I thought that that would have, if they were going to do one more tour, as Zeppelin, they're doing it with John's son. I think that could have been cool. I would. The selfish part of me wishes they had, but at the same time they didn't. And so there is kind of that cool thing of just yeah. Zeppelin they, was this. They could have made so much money on it. Oh, they, all of it. Yeah. All of the money. There'd be no money left because they would have they <laughs> They'd have it all. They would have it all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that 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 wasn't important to them. Mm-hmm. I think Robert Plant in particular is the one that you know, I, I don't think I think he especially was just like when, once once Bonzo is gone, that it's mm-hmm. it, we're done. Mm-hmm. Like we're not we're not doing this anymore. But God, to see that band back then, that's, um, yeah, them and Skinner around that same, that same time. God, there's so, some of these, so many. some of these, and I mentioned these live shows that you can find on YouTube and such the, the guitar solos by Jimmy Page, um, of, of all these people that we're talking about getting a time machine and going to see, seeing a Zeppelin show in that era might have been the best show not just the music, not just, but I'm talking about all together, the all-in-all entertainment value and show with lights and guitar solos and him pulling out a – Jimmy Page pulling out a bow and playing his <laughs> right. guitar with a bow. Right. Um, and, and some of the stuff – it's like he's casting spells over the crowd. It's crazy stuff. Oh, yeah. But you can't take your eyes off of it. And then you have Robert Plant up there like he's a Greek god in, in – shirtless and jeans that are they got to be like 24 in the waist yeah and with his hair and the, and the lights and everything it's just it from watching it on youtube just such a show and that is when you think of a rock show that's what comes to mind or, or the all in all uh entertainment value and overwhelming nature the, the sensory overload that would come with a zeppelin show from that era where this is not going to, I'll go ahead and spoiler. This is not going to be this particular side of a vinyl is not going to be on my uh, list of, um, of, you know, the, the side, one singular side of vinyl you want to hear. And this is from a live album, so it wouldn't qualify under our parameters. Right. But just the thought of you go and buy the, uh, the two LP for the song remains the same <laughs> side two of disc one is one song and it's 20 all 27 minutes of dazed and confused that is awesome. I mean, it's just amazing one side of the album is one jam one jam it's just dazed and confused jimmy in the in the, yeah. the bow and the whole deal yeah know? and jimmy wearing those like he wasn't shirtless but he had on like you know that like jumpsuit almost yeah with the, the top the black and open, white black and white with like, like stars a dragon on the back or something <laughs> yeah i know it's like if i get too close to this guy's gonna turn me into a toad or something <laughs> yeah. like that yeah it's kind of the feeling that uh, i got and a, yeah. a couple more things that step out or that stick out to me about that you're talking about iconic photos when we we're talking about robert johnson earlier and, and and I think going back to that, we had two different photos in mind. I was thinking about the one where he's sitting there holding the guitar with his legs crossed. Yeah. There's two. Well, there's the other photo where he's got the cigarette hanging in his mouth. Oh, no, no, no. I meant the okay, one with okay. the guitar. Yeah. Okay. But now that you say it, I know what you're talking about, the cigarette, too. Yeah. Iconic photo of Bonham, I mean, playing the hell out of the drum. And his hair's flying behind him. And it, it's almost like he's playing drums that are moving at 80 miles an hour because his hair is flying behind him and he's just playing with so much force. Um, I mean, he does the the Moby Dick Moby song Dick. and he's playing with just his hands and it's the drum solo for seven, eight minutes. It's Oddly enough, that's one of the first Zeppelin songs I ever heard was Moby Dick. Really? 
So I had in high school, I had some not close friends, but sort of friends, friends that had a little band, little cover band they started. And uh, I went to hear them practice one day. Um, and one of the songs they played, they played Moby Dick. The guitarist, he was really good. Actually, the guy who played bass and sang, uh, Jason, he's still back in my hometown. He's still, I think it's what he does full time now. Most For the most part, he's, he's still playing music, plays yeah. just local like one or two man shows here and there. Um, but he was, uh, he was the bassist and, and, and vocalist, but that was one song they would play because the drummer, he liked to, he liked to show off a he little his bit. Bonzo. He liked to do his bonzo. So they would play. And that, actually I saw in practice. No, they played our after prom party one year. I'm just now, this is, I've not thought about this in God, <laughs> 20 some year. It just came flying back to me. They play Moby Dick and they, you know, if you've heard that song, it's the whole band is playing. It's, it's instrumental. There's mm-hmm. no vocals. So the band plays the first part, and then when it gets to the drum solo, the very, very, very long drum solo, and I, I can now picture the, that band in their little bowling alley. We had our after prom party, and all taking their guitars and just lay them down on the ground, and they came out and sat with us. While the guy, <laughs> while did, his while the guy did his drum <laughs> solo for Moby Dick, because it goes on. Yeah, I don't it's know, forever. Eight, nine, ten, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, what an incredible, incredible drum. Well, I, I can say that. I'll, I'll throw this out there, and we can move on to the next band. But to this day, if I had to choose one song for the rest of my life, my favorite song, and this is not easy to do, but at the very top of my list, When the Levee Breaks is my all-time really? number one favorite song. That's a great song. Um, I can I can never get enough of that song, the way it opens, the echo of the drum, uh, because they recorded it in that stairwell in a home. Um, it's just such a unique sound. And it resonates with me because being from Mississippi, it's a, it's a song about the, the, from what I understand, the, it's a, um, a Delta blues song that was, that they kind of, it was an original, an original songs. And I'm not saying it was something else and they turned into it, but just, they were huge Delta blues guys, um, in terms of who they followed. They were big muddy waters guys and, uh, Howlin' Wolf. So it was all, you know, the squeeze my lemon until the juice runs down my leg. That was in a blues song. They have lots of different elements of their songs, lyrics and and otherwise, that they took from Delta Blues songs. And When the Levee Breaks is a nod to uh, the uh, levee of the Mississippi Delta. Um, there, are, there are plenty of blues musicians who sang songs about the levee breaking in the Mississippi Delta. And that's it, it resonates with me because here are these guys from the U.K., and they are infatuated with musicians that are from the same state I'm from. And I just thought that was so cool. Yeah. And so there's just lots of elements of that song that I absolutely love. And I, I think of all the songs that I hear when I hear that one, I can't flip it to the next track or flip it to the next radio station. That's awesome. Um, I I don't know that I've thought about this a lot through the years. Like if I had to pick one favorite song and I, it's so difficult so I, I'm not even gonna. I, I've got some. We'll get maybe I'll get into that at a future time. But I love that it's. I wouldn't have guessed that one for you, and I love yeah, that. That's I a love great that song. The intro, the intro. That I think even Jason Bonham might have said this when we saw him uh, with his band last year. I think he talked about the the iconic uh, in, intro, drum intro. Another random thing. I could be wrong about this, but I, I think. I, um, have you seen the movie Almost Famous? You ever seen that movie Almost Famous? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah great. Great movie, great sound. You are obviously. home. Yeah, 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 that's right. yeah so good. But ask me again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think when I've got the DVD for that movie 
again, we're going back 20 years. I think that the, um, you know how you get a, back in the day, you get a DVD and then the menu comes up and sometimes like a scene from the movie will just play over and over again right, or right, some music will right. play over and over again. I swear on the version I had when the levee breaks, the intro to it just plays over and over again on the DVD menu. Oh, that's that cool. Movie. And I remember there was some times where if I was going to watch it, I'd let it play for it because it was just kind of cool to hear the, so cool. hear the intro over and over again. There, so growing up, and by the way, I just looked it up. When the levee breaks, the lyrics reflect experiences during the upheaval caused by the great Mississippi flood in 1927. No kidding. Just, oh, that just gives me chills. Wow. But when I was growing up, um, the place where I felt like I grew up in terms of the real world, being around rough people, going out, that kind of thing was a place called Rick's Pool Hall. You'd have loved it. I, <laughs> that sounds right up my alley. Yeah, right up your alley, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that that jukebox, I swear, every night that song would play. And you just, well, I remember being 19 years old and at Rick's, and I couldn't drink yet, but maybe you knew some people who are older who might buy your picture or whatever. Hypothetically and, and there's, speaking. There's, yeah, there's smoke up to the ceiling, <laughs> and I'm walking in in my boots and my jeans, and I'm thinking I'm the cool kid on the block, and that song's playing, and it, it just takes me to a place. And I just remember thinking, like, man, I'm, I'm, I have freedom now. I'm out of high school. I am able to go to the places I want to go to. I can learn about the world. I can go out and chase girls and – uh, not that I couldn't in high school. It was just different. And sure. it was just, there was just a a feeling of this is such a cool place to be. I don't have to I don't have to worry about a curfew. I don't have to let anybody know when I'm home. Um, it was just a um a time in my life where I had freedom and had independence for really the first time. And for some reason, that song just made me feel like I was just a really cool guy, which was a complete lie. But <laughs> it, it, it was just a fun place. It was a fun time of my life. And uh, I'll never forget when the levee breaks playing in Rick's pool hall and just thinking, man, this is cool. It's so interesting. You know, we talked about earlier the Yeehaw Junction effect of uh, hearing a song for uh, differently or for the first time or whatever. Another thing that I just love about music, and you just touched on it there, hearing a song and you instantly – yeah, this whole this whole episode is about if we had a time machine. Yeah, it's funny how you hear certain songs and it takes you back. The second you hear it, it takes you right back to where you first heard it. Or it could to be a perfect a, time it could in your be life. such a specific place, Rick. Very specific. And you might yes. you forgot what you ate for breakfast, but you hear this song, you knew exactly where you were in 1997. Right. Uh, it, it's such a cool thing. So I'm going to use that to transition into my next one. Perfect. Because I remember this is a band I'd heard of. I knew the name, didn't know any songs that they sang. A uh, buddy of mine, I was in college, and so we were at the record store, which this is about 2002, 2003. So a record store at that time, for you younger folks, was a, a store consisting of mostly CDs. You could um, even go there just to hang out. Or you could, and I did. High yeah. school and in college, I went there to hang out. And by a compact disc, a CD yes. is what they were called. Um, but we just went just to go i wasn't we weren't going for anything in specific he liked music and, and i've always loved music so i was just a frequent visitor of the record store going there with no uh mission of buying anything in particular right just going to go yeah. look around yeah maybe i'll buy something maybe i won't uh so of course it's the record store so of course they're playing music in the record store my buddy and i are just slipping through cds and this song comes on i can remember uh, not only I remember being in the store, I remember exactly what spot we were standing in in the store and looking up and both of us at the same time going, oh, what is this? 
it was like one of the coolest friggin' riffs I'd ever heard in my life. And then the guy started singing. I'm like, oh man, like I, 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 whatever this is, I got to have this. Um, it was Thin Lizzy. Now at this point in my life, <clears throat> I had heard the boys are back in town. Yeah. I'd heard Jailbreak. Yeah. I didn't know Thin Lizzy was the band that sang them. Didn't know anything about Thin Lizzy other than I'd heard the name. Uh, the song that was playing that day, I will say this. If you're asking me to put together my top 10 favorite songs of all time, I don't know where this one is on the list, but it's in there. Uh, the song is called Wild One. Good uh, song. It's a great yeah. song, great riff. I feel like it. it's sort of, it's a really good, quick, embodies a lot of what Thin Lizzy was about at their their peak. Like that Phil Lennon, like the dual guitar, classic dual guitar riffs, along with Phil Lennon, his his words, his vocals, bass playing, all of it's so good. Um, so I would go back to 1977. Uh, so I'm seeing a lot of shows in 1977, I'm seeing Skinner. Um, <laughs> You're having a really good year. 77 is badass, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> going to go see Thin Lizzy. Uh, and again, for this kind of the same reasoning as, uh, as my Zeppelin, Live and Dangerous was recorded that year. Uh -huh. That is Thin Lizzy at their peak when they are on their greatest run of albums. Uh, the Fighting album, which is my favorite, uh, Jailbreak, uh, Johnny the Fox. Like, this is all happening at this time. And the Live and Dangerous record, by the way, for folks who aren't familiar with Thin Lizzy, it is, and I this is not hyperbole or anything or exaggeration, it is one of the greatest live albums, at least in rock, ever. Yeah. I actually, I discovered there is something online called Classic Rock Magazine. Didn't know that. Uh, but they once did a, a list of the, the top 50 live classic rock albums that I was pleasantly surprised to find Live and Dangerous than Lizzie at number at the number one spot. Oh, nice. It is that good. The cover is iconic as it gets. It's just Phil Lennett with... I wish I knew a nicer way to describe this, but his crotch is kind of in your face on the stage on the <laughs> album cover. That makes it sound bad, but it's, it's, I mean this more and he's in a, just a rock and roll pose. Right. Um, that album, that live album, that is one that if I live to be a hundred years old, I'll be there barely able to move yeah. with my little George Burns cigar and shake of my left hand, still saying, put on life dangerous. <laughs> Cause I just love that album. I love this band so much. Uh, and it also, it started with that day at that record store, uh, 20, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, with that one song, but since then going back and discovering their whole catalog and then looking up live performances from them, from the mid seventies when they were at their peak, Man, that band was, they were, it, it's a shame they weren't bigger in the States than, they didn't get bigger. When in the did States Phil did. pass away? 80, uh, mid 80s, 84, yeah. 85, 86, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah, mid, mid 80s. And Thin Lizzy was already kind of, they had already kind of disbanded a year or two before that. And he was trying to do his a uh, little more of a solo thing. Um, but they were, at their peak was right around that 1976, 1977. Yeah. Era, yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, here's the funny thing in, in the States, you could do, we could do a topic on most underrated bands. Mm -hmm. And I think people, I think Americans would see thin Lizzie on a list and think, yeah, yeah. I, I great songs so much more than the boys are back in town and you know, stuff that you've always heard go listen to their albums and it's like, wow, listen to all this stuff. You go outside of the States and people are like, oh, it's underrated. What are you talking about? They're like, massive. Yeah. They're, they're, 
They are very rated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a statue of Phil Lennett in in Dublin, and they're Irish band. And there's this, yeah. If, which if I ever go over there, that's 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 on the list. Shit, I hate it. I've been to Dublin. I should have gotten a pig. I never even thought about there, that. There's a uh, so me. I've already mentioned earlier, and again, if you're listening to the show and you're going to keep listening to us, you're going to hear me babble about Metallica a lot. James Hetfield, the singer, he's said that Phil Lennett is one of his. That's his favorite lyricist. Whiskey in the jar. Whiskey in the jar. They covered. There's a picture, I guess the most recent time Metallica was over there in the Dublin areas within the last, I don't know if it was this year within the last few years, but there's a great picture uh, that was posted. James does it himself. The rest of the band has their own personal social medias. He doesn't do it. So if he really wants to post something, he just has the Metallica account post it. Right. And there's a picture of him with the Phil Lennon statue. And he's literally giving a kiss to the statue. No way. Because he just had to go there and had to see, had to see it. Had to pay tribute to Phil. There's a documentary that came out about Phil Lennon in the last couple of years. It's pretty good. Um, uh, I'm blanking on the name of it. It's something like a song for while I'm away or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hetfield is one of the people they interview in the documentary. Um, if you're listening to this and you you like a lot of these bands or you like a lot of classic rock, but all you know about Thin Lizzy is the boys are back in town, mm-hmm. go right now. Do and yourself just, a favor. Just you know what? Start with the easiest one, Jailbreak. Yeah. Just, yeah. just track one, hit play. Let it play. Yeah. I promise you, if you like classic rock and you don't know Thin Lizzy, you will Speaking like of them. great opening riffs for Jailbreak. One of the best. Incredible opening riff. Well, absolutely has to be one of the best riffs ever. Yeah. That, that riff, that's rock and roll. Yeah. That riff is rock yeah. and roll. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one, Rick. Uh, how many we have left? I've got, let's see. I've got, I've got two. I think I got two or three. Okay. So yeah. Yeah, yeah perfect. Um, all right, I'm going to go early 90s. This is, is no specific year. This is 91 to 94 for Soundgarden. Um, early 90s grunge era. It's a fascinating era to me. It's a very unique era to me. It's, it's unlike so many things. All of those guys in the Seattle area and, and in the Northwest in that area, all those bands... Um, they're pretty much playing for each other. It, it it wasn't obviously grunge became this big phenomenon for about what do you say six seven years ninety one to about ninety seven and it kind of I think that pretty much I think became that's a different good, things yeah but all those guys all those bands all pretty much in the Seattle Seattle era uh, area were were playing for each other I mean you, they and they were living with each other. Um, Chris Cornell and Andy Wood, roommates. Uh, Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell were roommates before they even got together and formed Alice in Chains. <laughs> all these guys were just playing. And and some of those guys, not all of them, you wouldn't say this about um, Cornell, you wouldn't say this about uh, any of the guys from Nirvana, but some of those guys were very similar to what you said about Pantera, were in kind of glamish, a glamish era. Um, I, I see Andy Wood in Mother Love Bone and, and I see glimpses of that just a little bit. And, and I don't I know that could come with a negative connotation uh, for people who are big grunge rock people. They're the, the anti hair metal people. Yeah, they, they killed hair metal. They, they, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I, I think those guys became something so unique and that whole area turned into something that was so different. And, and it, it really got turned into just backwash because then you had 14 year olds and across the country wearing flannel shirts <laughs> thinking they were grunge and such. Oh yeah. Um, I, there was nothing about me 
There's nothing about my upbringing. There's nothing about the music that I previously listened to that was anything like those guys. It's not how I grew up. I'm a Southern boy. I grew up on country music, rock and roll. But when I heard some of this stuff, I couldn't get enough of it. I wasn't wearing flannel shirts to school because I I, I wasn't them. Um, they were such a different group. But it was it was so much fun to watch. And it really starts, obviously, with Nirvana and and Cobain and all that. And it was some, I mean, they sang about really dark stuff. And as I'm taking it in as a 12, 13, 14-year-old, it's a lot to understand. Uh, singing about suicide and things like this and uh, negative and depressing tones. And, and it was, it, it, it felt exactly what it was called, grungy. It felt dirty, but it, I liked it. <laughs> and I think for um, as much as the grunge spirit really personifies a we don't care attitude at all, I think just being around each other had to have been tremendous for creative inspiration for those guys and, and for all those guys to come along about the same time. Um, and, and for me, of all the grunge bands, of all those bands that you had in that era, Soundgarden's my favorite. And and Soundgarden, sure, they they fit the grunge scene, but they're a rock band. It was yeah. it was a um, the way you might say that Allison Change was, you know, kind of a foundation in R and in, in rhythm and blues. You might say, um, and I don't mean that in terms of like hip hop or anything like that, but just like the the way that they played. It was it was kind of like a an, an original old school. And the, uh, the like the vocal harmony. Yes. And all that. Yeah. 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 Um, but Soundgarden stood out to me, and it was because of Chris Cornell. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, when I first time I heard Chris Cornell, like, this is one of my favorite voices. And I've always been a big voice guy. I like different, I mean, obviously, I'm a broadcaster. So that, that jumps out to me. So to if I could have seen them live in that era, I think it would have been so tremendous because they weren't huge and I don't think they really wanted to be. I, I think that's kind of what they sang against. I, I saw a Cornell interview one time where he said, the thing that, that really turns people on to a band like Nirvana is that if you're watching the music video, these guys look like you. They look <laughs> like the people you go to school with. Whereas you have in the same era, and this is the example that Cornell used, you have a band like Whitesnake where the lead singer's wife is dancing on the hood of a Jaguar and, and really, really showing you a lifestyle that you will never have. No kidding. And, and, and a way of life that you will never be a part of and you will never be good enough for. And then a band like Nirvana comes along and they look like all the people that you hang out with and they look like all the people that you go to school with. And he was so right. Um, I, I love... Uh, it's a video, it's a, an interview that I heard and I thought he was just so good with how he articulated what that that music was, what that era was, and what those guys wanted to achieve. And deep down, they just wanted to play. Um, and I, I just think that having it blow up to the popularity that it blew up to, they never saw that coming. They just wanted to play and play for each other and push each other create, uh, creatively. Uh, and I think they all those bands did that, and and seeing other bands that branched off and came from that um, from that uh, part of the country, Screaming Trees, mm-hmm. um, so many just really really good bands that were so unique in such a small uh, portion of time that just kind of quickly poof and it was gone. 
So I, I, despite the fact that my list is made up of the, so Allison Chains made my, my honorable mentions. Yeah. I didn't end up putting them on the last list. They're my favorite of the, if the big four are Nirvana, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam and Allison Chains, love all of them. Yeah. First of all, uh, Allison Chains was my favorite best vocalist of all of them. Chris Cornell, hands down, I think. Yeah. I will say this, despite the fact that all my whole list, pretty much my whole list here is of bands not from this era that you were currently discussing. If I get into a car that has Sirius XM or if I'm going to flip on like a Pandora type station, like if there's a genre I'm looking for, nine times out of ten, I'm going with whatever the 90s rock channel of that that platform is. Because if I'm getting a mixture of those four bands, and then you mentioned some of the other ones, I mean... Pick your poison here, uh, screaming trees, uh, mother love bone, temple of the dog, which yeah. of course was oh, a, sure a, 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 you know a combination of a, of two of those bands we mentioned, mm-hmm. and then there's you know there's a lot of other bands that fall under that grunge umbrella, and some maybe a little bit beyond like Stone Temple Pilots was that grunge and the same that those other four were no, but you play you turn on a station that's playing that type of music, you're gonna hear Stone Temple Pilots too, which yeah I love STP yeah. Chris Cornell's voice, something I've listened to a lot in recent years. Uh, it started with years ago. I saw a YouTube video. I still go back and watch it every now and then. I think it's from like 2012. Some benefit show or something Chris Cornell was playing at. Just him and acoustic guitar. And I think it must have been right after or right around the time Whitney Houston had died. So he came out and he's playing his songs. And uh, I, I know in the in the, vid, the YouTube, it's just somebody in the stands taping it. He says, I uh, just learned this one before I came out. So if I mess it up, please forgive me. You know, kind of laughs a little bit. And then he plays, he plays, I will always love you. But it's Chris Cornell singing. My gosh. And it's like, you want to cry because yeah. it's just so good. And then I know I've got on my, on my, uh, my Apple music, um, some live stuff from him doing I Am The Highway, uh-huh. like solo acoustic. Um, his version of I never cared about uh, nothing compares to you, Sinead O'Connor. Yeah, it's written by Prince. Prince song. Uh, never. I mean, it's not. I don't dislike. It. I just never. He never did anything for me. His version of it, live acoustic. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah. I mean, it floors me every time. So that guy's voice was just. It was one of the best ever. So I, I love that you chose that. Also. Hey, Pat's on our own backs here. For there's the big board, big four of grunge, and we picked what I think most people would not pick as well right. Kind of pick over. Yeah, I got to see Cornell live in 2015 at the Ryman. Oh wow! What maybe the best show ever? It's it's top three. Holy cow! It was amazing. And you know he he would play Soundgarden stuff. He'd play Audio Slave stuff. He'd play uh, things that were like you mentioned. Um, Nothing compares to you. He played that. He played other cover songs. He played uh, solo songs. And, and some of these songs he'd have band members with. Some of them he would play by himself. But he he said something that really resonated with me. Um, and because he talked a lot in between those songs and 2015, I wish I had taken more videos of it. I don't know that I had a cell phone that really did it justice then with the technology being what it was, but I remember him saying he was talking about, this is a sound garden song or he plays, so this is an audio slave song, but he said really the, the major, um, motivation for this tour. And he had just put out uh, a solo album. He said, when it comes to being a, a great musician, he said, I don't think you can consider yourself 
a great musician, do you go out there solo and you perform the songs by yourself, playing, singing, um, you master, master an instrument and write a song. And he said, until I felt like I could do this solo and play an instrument and sing a song and perform a song for an audience, then I wasn't the musician that I really wanted to be. And he, he's so right, because the spotlight's on one guy. And if it's a song that he wrote, and he's the only one performing, and he's the only one singing, th that's music. Mm -hmm. That's talent. That is musical talent. And there's so much out there, and this is going to be it for another episode, uh, that you hear on the radio with multiple genres. That is just talentless garbage. It's just nothing. <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it has zero soul. It has zero creativity. It's probably performed by someone who can't sing or, or can't even play an instrument. So when I see the opposite of that, when I see someone who can master an instrument and play a song for an audience that they wrote, to me, that, that's the... Um, that's the pinnacle of the talent. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and really capture an entire room with yeah. what you are doing, uh, to me. And I got to witness it that night and think, that's what sticks out to me. I think that's what's, that is what's so great. That's why I, I, anytime I find a band, like a rockish band like that, or even country, really, if they strip it all down and they're doing shows or a tour or whatever, where it's just them and a guitar or just them acoustically, or even if it's the band, but they strip it down to where it's just acoustic and it's a minimal amount of frills and they still sound great. Yeah. And in some cases sound even better because it's that talent is shining through. There's just, yeah, to me, there's, there's, it mesmerizes it's, it's, me. It, 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 same with me. Okay. So I, I, I'm going to package these next two together. They're not really related at all, but I, I feel like with both of these two, I think each of these are going to require their own episode at some point in the show's future. So, and we can do that. And we can do that. We can do whatever we want we on the Yeehaw Junction. We, the Yeehaw Junction, where anything is possible. It's a <laughs> blank canvas out here, the Yeehaw Junction podcast. Uh, the first one here I'll mention, I will kick myself every day for the rest of my life that I didn't just buy a ticket in early 2017 to say I saw them. And I didn't because all that was left were nosebleeds and they were a little pricey. I was like, ah. I'll catch Tom Petty in the heartbreak oh. all the time. Never saw him. And I will always kick myself for never having seen him. If I'm picking an era I, with them, I went with the great, like, I just want to hear all the hits yeah. with them, yeah. which I think it fits a band like them because they, they were, you were going to show up and they were going to play some covers here and there, but they're going to play all the ones you want to hear. Right. Uh, so I'd have gone back to about 91, probably early nineties. Uh, if I go ahead, if I skip ahead a couple years, then maybe they'll throw in Mary Jane's Last Dance, but that's certainly not a requirement. I think I've told you this. So uh, 2017, you and I, our baseball season ends. Braves uh, didn't make the postseason that year, so it ends on October 1st or whatever it was, that Sunday. Um, Tom Petty passes away the next day, I believe it was. And so I- it was October of 17, right? October of 17, okay. yep. And so I had planned on, I was already planning on, I'm from Virginia. My parents, sisters st were still up there. So baseball season was over. So I had planned on driving up to Virginia and spending a few days with the family because I hadn't seen them in a little while because just during baseball season, you're yeah. busy. Uh, so I, and it's about an eight hour drive, give or take from Atlanta to where I'm from in Virginia. So Tom Petty just died a couple of days before. So I was like, you know, 
I know the 20 biggest Tom Petty songs. I might know a couple past that. But then I would start thinking, like, have I ever done a deep dive and like listened to Tom Petty albums, like albums and the uh-huh. deep cuts? And I kid you not, this is no exaggeration. This is literally what happened. I ended up spending that entire eight-hour drive listening to nothing but Tom Petty. Did not listen to one other thing but Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And through that eight-hour drive, I discovered it was like I had discovered a whole other like greatest hits album. But just by listening to all these deep cuts, I'm like, holy, God, holy crap, that's a great song. Oh my God, that's a great song. And then listening to the live anthology and going, oh my God, the wild one forever. Like the live yeah. version of the song. I had actually heard the studio version of that before. Okay. Then I heard the live version on the anthology and it like floored me. I'm like, this is an amazing, amazing song. So quick way of saying, I, 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 I kick myself for not seeing Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And there's so much there. One of the greatest music documentaries ever is that Tom Petty uh, and the Heartbreakers documentary. It came out some years back. I saw one on a plane. I wonder if it's the same one. Might have been. I saw one on a plane this past summer. Um, I can't maybe say either way. It's probably very similar. But what blows me away with t- number one, unbelievable talent. I mean, there's so there, I, I I got a kick out of a part of the documentary where there are songs that there are other people that wanted him to write a song for them, or and he would, and he'd say, you know what, I think I'm going to keep this one. <laughs> right. This, this, this is too good to give to whomever else. Yeah. Um, yeah, he does a song with Stevie Nicks, and it, that's about the only one he gave. Right, exactly, and even he still sings a lot. Yeah, too yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, it, it, it's so it's so Americana to me because you've got this guy who he knew what he wanted to do from a young age, and you got all these other really talented musicians who ended up in the Heartbreakers that lived in his Benmont Tench, um, uh, Mike Campbell. These these guys like grew up together so you're telling what are the odds that guys this good who would be this good would know each other as kids and and for the original group it's like we got to get to hollywood we got to get to la and they leave gainesville florida and they're like 18 years old and they drive across the country to pursue this yeah i mean it's only in america to get a, a story like that it's like a modern day like we're just we're getting in the covered wagon yeah and we're this is what we got to go do we we're might not be rock stars it. yeah we're, we're we're gonna die or we're gonna make it yeah pretty much like i'm if i'm not gonna be a rock star then i don't want to be anything yeah and that when i think of tom petty i think rock star did you ever see tom petty live i didn't but it's, yeah. it's similar to what you're saying yeah they had a show here in atlanta maybe 15 16 and there were tickets through the radio station. And I had thought about going, but I was going on a trip. And my just kind of very shallow comment was, ah, well, that doesn't work out. I'll catch him next time. Yeah. And there wasn't a next time. No. And I remember when he passed in 17, that's the first thing I thought of. Like, I could have seen, it was either the year before, maybe in the summer before, maybe 2016. That's so wild. They're playing at State Farm Arena. Yeah. And I was going, it, it just, it overlapped. You know what it was, Rick? It, it might've overlapped the night before I was leaving. Okay. Maybe I had an early flight and I was like, I, I'll catch him next time. Cause I'm flying to, um, I think it was New York city. I was doing, I was flying to New York city right as soon as the season ended and meeting some buddies and we we're doing a road trip around New England. We're hitting up all the New England states, seeing a bunch of stuff. I th- I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And I just remember thinking, I'll just 
I can catch him next time. And that, that never came. That's so wild that you and I have never talked about this before. Cause that's exactly how mine went, but it was, it was just a, a year or two later. Yeah. But the whole deal played out the exact same way. Could have gone for whatever reasons didn't. And then fast forward to October, 2017 and I'm kicking myself and still am to this day that didn't go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that. Uh, I will t- transition into my, my next one. And then that'll bring us each to our, our last pick after this one. But talking about great music documentaries and i don't know what what the episode is going to be at the future but you and i need to do a a whole episode on this guy well it's a band but let's be honest it's one guy Uh, i'm getting in my my delorean i'm heading back to 1981 i'm gonna see lemmy and motorhead yes i'm going to see motorhead that is the classic live album no sleep till hammersmith that's 1981 that is they were motorhead was for maybe a brief time, the biggest band, there was one summer, they're the biggest band in the UK, from UK, of course. And that was 81, I believe, right in there. Fresh out. I mean, they're touring Ace of Spades album at this point. That band, loudest band, I think at one point, Guinness Book of World Records for being the loudest band. Mm-hmm. However, they measured that. I don't know if that was a thing. But you just talk about, we've, we've said this a few times, but if you talk about what is a, like if you look up in the dictionary, if you were to, if they were to put in rock star, and they're going to put a picture next to it. Lemmy. Put put Lemmy in there. Yeah. That that guy just amazing and just there's you you're going to go see Motorhead. I love a good ballad, but I ain't going to a Motorhead show to see no. a ballad. I'm going to have my face melted off yeah. by this wall of amplifiers that are turned up too loud and this dude that's dressed up like a some kind of soldier from some sort <laughs> mixed with a rock like a and roll bullet belt <laughs> bullet belt <laughs> the big wart ugly wart yeah. on his face and he's playing a bass guitar like it's a electric like a regular guitar and he's he craning his neck up to get to the microphone to, to the sing. Microphone. and he sounds like he's been gargling gravel and razor blades and razor blades for for a month straight yeah. and drinking whiskey which he had been doing for a month well for right years straight at that point uh, Motorhead live, and there's just, I mean, if I get to hear in their prime, I'm hearing the chase is better than the catch, overkill, no class, ace of spades, stone dead forever. Yeah. Uh, I, I would walk out of there. I think I would, uh, I don't know, like, like a, like a goofy con- scene in a comedy movie where something blows up and then everybody's like, like their hair and everything's like all blown up after I'm trying to think of the scene I'm thinking of, um, early nineties comedy. Doesn't matter. You walk out of there and your face has been melted. Mm-hmm. And that's why you win. And that's why you win. And there's no mystery to it. Because what does he stay, say when he opens the concert? We are Motorhead. And, and we, we play, play rock and, and roll. we play rock and roll. That's what you got. That's it. And that's what they do. And then there were sometimes he would come out and say, we are Motorhead and we're going to kick your ass. <laughs> that was another variation of it. Yeah. Say back in the day. Either way, it's true. And it's what's about to, it's what's going to happen. Yeah. There, so. There's no mistake as to what's about to take place. I love seeing him with his bass. Mike is is elevated above his <laughs> nose, yeah. and he's he's got, and that's how he liked to sing. Yeah. I, I don't know anybody else who's who sang like that, where the mic went right in front of them, and he's got his head up. I don't know if that helped him achieve the sound that he wanted, but it looks so cool, and his hair is like swinging back behind him, and um, every single rock band, every single metal band, right now, past, present, future. Ask them who motivates them. Ask them who's an inspiration for them. They'll all say Lemmy. They'll all say Motorhead. 
And, and you're right. It, the Motorhead is Lemmy. I, I can name one other guy in the business, like Filthy Phil, only because I yeah. know his nickname. Yeah. I don't even know that guy's last name. <laughs> exactly. I don't know anybody else in the band. Yeah. But it it's Lemmy. And it's Motorhead. And um, that that's such a great one because when you are in the mood for that, nothing hits that button like they, uh, those guys did. They're going to kick your ass. Yeah. Just like Lemmy said they were going to. Yeah. And that's, that's so yeah, I, I never got to see them, never got to see Lemmy. At some point, I know you and I both love the Lemmy documentary that came out a while back. Oh, I don't man. know. Maybe there's it's something. It's so there. funny. It's, it's just, just to watch him is just hysterical. You're just a fly on the wall in the life of Lemmy at home and on the road and it's and at the rainbow at the corner yeah. of the bar playing the the, playing the video, video game <laughs> video game that was just him and that was and it was great that's he's, he's what he what he's what i want my rock star to be yeah just great yeah, that's so. exactly right i've got one left and i'm going to finish with um a pretty obvious choice uh i mean king of rock and roll i'm going to see elvis i'm a mississippi guy uh, there are people in mississippi who today have an eight by 10 on the wall of Elvis next to an eight by 10 of Jesus. Right. <laughs> I've, I've been in Mississippians homes who have those two eight by tens next to each other. Um, I would choose Elvis 1968 comeback special. He looked awesome. He looked healthy. He's in this intimate setting in this black leather jumpsuit. And it's like, this is, this is a rock and roll. Um, this is what is going to be, Kind of the in a similar way to what I talked about with with Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family, I know that rock and roll. I mean, predates Elvis. Elvis w took inspiration from multiple other um, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, etc. And he was able to mainstream kind of some of their work. Um, but he he just was the total package and a great voice and. Um, just as, as handsome as they came, as incredibly talented, so unique. You know Elvis. It, there's not another voice that sounds like Elvis. So w with all those things tied in, I can't call myself a native Mississippian and not have Elvis Presley on my list. So he'd be a concert that I'd see in a take 68. I, I wanted to put him on mine. He didn't end up making it on there. He's in my, my honorable mentions. But, I mean, you said he's the king of rock and roll. And just... We talked about earlier with with I think I'm referenced him with we're talking about Michael Jackson that level of fame yeah few have ever attained that and few ever will especially in the kind of world we live in now at that time you talk talk he's like a Jesus figure I mean he was like a he really was like a larger than life yeah. like he's out one of name this world one name you say Elvis everybody yeah. everybody in in since 1955, who's lived, lived on planet Earth, you say Elvis. They know who Elvis they is. They know who it is. And to your point about the 68 special, if I, if you ask me, like if, if you're asking me to think of Elvis Presley, what's the first image of him that comes in your head? It's in that black, mm. the black, the black that he's wearing, that all black he's, outfit he's wearing in the comeback special. My grandparents, when I was a kid, they had a few um, in their little bar in the basement. They had a few um, decanters, yeah, old school decanters, and one of them was an Elvis decanter. No way. <laughs> of him in that, in that, from that, like just model. like the George Jones song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, uh, yeah, there so much. Like when I was a kid, before I was like before I became a teenager, but was at least trying to like learn about music or was getting interested in music and like grew up on country. But then I'm like, wait, where are the Beach Boys? Like I got like I'm a kid like nine year old I got a Beach Boys like surfing yeah, USA yeah. cassette like here and I'm like oh this is cool again 
eight years old, whatever, like hearing it, but going, man, this is neat. Right. And then getting like Elvis's like jailhouse rock. Like I got that and I wore that thing out. Yeah. Uh, and then like, uh, as a kid loved watching the movie, Viva Las Vegas with Elvis yeah. and Ann Margaret, where he's yeah. a race car driver or aspiring race car driver. Like everything about that guy is rock and roll. And to see somebody and like just that, cool. that's just cool. It's and cool. we'll, it doesn't matter how many generations go on and on. Yeah. He's, some other artists along the way, sadly, might kind of fade away. Yeah. Like, he's always going to be there. Uh, little side note, you interest, You mentioned Little Richard. Isn't it interesting? Lemmy from Motorhead, sight, like Little Richard was yeah. like his biggest yeah. influence. Interesting how it just spawns off of that. But go ahead. Sorry. Elvis. It, 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 um, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. That's no, no, my no, bad, you're good. Um, no, I was just trying to think where I was going with that. But what were you just talking about before? Before uh, I completely derailed the entire yeah, yeah, conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Viva Las Vegas. That oh, level oh, of fame. Okay. Yeah. I, I think for a lot of us, because um, you mentioned the Beach Boys, I can say the same thing. There, There's a level of nostalgia that I'll have for Beach Boys, that I will have for Elvis, that I will have for B.B. Uh, King. Um, and, and what I'm getting at is, is a, a lot of these, and maybe B.B. King wouldn't be the same for everybody. I grew up listening. I heard a lot of B.B. King growing up. My, I've got multiple uncles and cousins on my dad's side who are very musically inclined. They all played bands, uh, blues bands, rock bands. Not, and they obviously never played anything huge, but they had a, an uncle who had a blues band. They toured Europe. Um, so I, I grew up around music. I grew up hearing B.B. King and stuff like that. What I'm getting at is, is for a lot of us, our, our introduction into music was Elvis, mm-hmm. was the Beach Boys, was the Beatles, um, I, I remember hearing, um, a Beatles song when I was a kid. I remember hearing, I want to hold your hand. I remember my mom listening to oldies stations when I was a kid because she liked the music. It was from when she was growing up and she knew it was safe for young ears. And I know there are some songs that maybe a, a Beach Boys song or an Elvis song, maybe you wouldn't say is kid friendly or maybe, but, but, but by and large they are. Oh yeah, um, I, I think you'd, you really have to find something that you wouldn't that you'd have a problem with an eight year old listening. You'd to have to or, be nitpicking and really, yeah. really, you'd have to you'd have to go into that wanting to just not play that mm-hmm. for them because I can't imagine there's anything there that's no nothing I can think and of. So, so a lot of a lot of those musicians and, and for people our age and, and probably older too, that was an introduction into genres that we are currently knee deep in right now. That was the the four, some of those guys were the the ancestors, the forefathers of what we currently listen to. And you can remember being six, seven, eight years old, and you, you knew blue suede shoes, or at least the chorus. I remember singing and because I people laughed when I sang blue suede shoes. <laughs> um, my my family would laugh when I sing uh, Little Deuce Coop. Um, I remember learning. Um, Johnny Be Good, Chuck Berry, when I was like seven. Yeah. And I, I remember singing Johnny Be Good. My my uncles thought it was hilarious. But a lot of those guys, and I, I would really narrow it down to Beach Boys, Chuck Berry, Elvis, B.B. King for me. I knew them when I was a kid. 
So there's 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 that nostalgic twist to you know, yes, a lot of the musicians that you listen to now started there, but you remember those days of your childhood where you knew those songs, you thought you're cool because you learned a a Chuck Berry song or an Elvis song. Yeah, that predates you. I was born in 1980. Yeah. These these people were Elvis was long gone by the time I was born, or even knew any of his songs. But that's just what you did as a kid. You just thought you were cool and. That's where I, that was my introduction into the genres I listen to now. I have this like image in my head of when I'd gotten that first Beach Boys cassette when I was a kid and we were on the road with my dad traveling NASCAR. Uh, we must have been going to Dover, Delaware, something where we were headed to the Northeast or headed back down south in the Northeast. But I know we were going through DC because all we were coming over this bridge or something off in the distance i could see like the washington monument or something yeah but i was i had my brand new beach boys cassette and i was listening to it my little walkman for the first time and yeah just, that image i don't know why i remember that looking out the window while i was listening to that cassette for the first time but i just remember seeing it off in the distance while i had my little earphones in and just whatever it was it was happening to me it was the that was sowing the seeds of why we're here now yeah later, yeah because it was it was firing me up even as a little kid i'd recognize something in that that was just so great. And I felt the same way when I went and got, I think my first Elvis was a cassette tape too, but I'm pretty sure it was uh jailhouse rock. Yeah. Uh, but I remember those early, just first listening to jailhouse rock, hound dog. Uh, even the, I still to this day, every year I've got the Elvis Christmas album on vinyl. Every, yeah. every Christmas, blue every Christmas, Christmas, blue Christmas, the yeah. whole, the whole, it's, yeah. it's, it's great. So, all right, we're down to one, aren't we? Yeah. Fire away. Okay. Your last one. Well, <laughs> Again, this is, uh, you're going to hear me talk about it. Helen wearing their t-shirt with their name on it right now. I've seen Metallica nine times, but as a, an, an obsessed fanboy of this band and now having seen them over the course of 23 years, first show was July 4th, 2000. That was the one show that I saw them where Jason Newstead was the bass player. He was the bass player from the end of 1986 through, uh, the very beginning of 2001 the original bass player, Cliff Burton, mm -hmm. if you don't know the story of Metallica, tragically passed away while the band was on tour in a bus accident in uh, Sweden in 1986. So they were on the Master of Puppets tour. So I would go back to 1986 to say that I, to, to see him with Cliff yeah. on that tour. Now, if you ask me what is like, just give me one that's like the definitive, like live era of like Metallica kind of at the peak of the the power, which they're still great. I just mm -hmm. saw them this summer. They're 60 years old. James in particular sounds phenomenal. They're playing great. They're sounding great. But just kind of that, that when they were really, really at their peak, I would point you in the direction of 1989 live in Seattle. It's on the and justice for all box set. If you have Apple music, get the, the box sets available and you can go down, you can listen to the live in Seattle show. Um, it was part of a box set that came out in the 90s, that particular show. That was great. But to say I saw Cliff and to see these guys when they were 23 years old in 1986, before their world changed yeah. forever, before yeah. Cliff loses his life, uh, that was the, the year, they, they the infamous tour where they were opening for Ozzy. Um, Ozzy was at the height of his solo career at that point. And Ozzy has talked about how we talked about the competition thing earlier. Yeah. They were huge black Sabbath guys. Yeah. They weren't there to like try to upstage Ozzy, but Ozzy has said they were giving him a run for his money every night. I mean, these guys, kids are coming out here opening for me and they are they're giving it to me. So average set list for Metallica in 1986, 
Again, these guys are 23, and this is their set list. So they're touring on three albums at this point. Kill Em All, Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets. Uh, average set list, 12 songs. Battery, Master of Puppets, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Sanitarium, Ride the Lightning, The Thing That Should Not Be, Seek and Destroy, Fade to Black, Creeping Death, Whiplash, Am I Evil, which is a cover, and then they would close with Damage Inc. Uh, but to see those guys, I've watched, gone back and watched videos. Um, it really all just comes back to... I, w I would like to see him when Cliff was still around mm -hmm. as a diehard fan. And I know how much they all loved and Cliff wasn't the leader per se of the band, but in a lot of ways, the way James and Lars talk about in particular, it was a lot of times they looked to Cliff Yeah, when with things with the band direction, musical direction, he was the guy that was bringing like classical music to the table. And I don't know that they've ever said this, but I often wonder if a song like master of puppets, which is a heavy metal song, but it's almost like classical and it's, it's got these movements and yeah. parts and it starts with this blistering thing. And then the chorus is another blistering thing, but at a little different pace. And then it just kind of stops in the middle and does this whole melodic slow yeah. thing yeah. and builds back up to what it opened with. Like it's very, to me. Like mimics the, the style. It does. It's structured. In, in a metal version. So much of what made early Metallica great. And I love all eras. Yeah. But so much of what made that great to me was that kind of structure. It right. mimicked that right. style of like, this isn't just a song like we're here. Some of these songs, some of their songs were here. We're just here to kick your ass. Yeah. But there were ones like that that were like, um, like epic yeah. in their their composition. So uh, that that's number one for me. And favorite band, again, I've seen them a slew of times, seen them more than any. In, How many times do you think you've seen them? Uh, nine times it's yeah. in six different states. I'm a nerd and I keep stats. On yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I, I know. I can tell you which songs I've seen. How many times I've seen them. I got it all. Is there, is there a song that you've only heard once? Uh, there's a, there's a couple. Uh, <clears throat> let me bring up my list here, Ben. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I won the, the, I know you saw them, you and I both saw them at ATL Live uh -huh. uh, in 2021. There's one song there, uh, Holier Than Thou. It's the only time I've seen that one. Uh, let's see. Yeah, there's actually a bunch I've only seen. Once. Really? Yeah, I've 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 got them all here. Well, they've only got about a thousand songs. It's only <laughs> only 120, 150 of them uh, if you count the covers. Uh, a few actually, there are a bunch I got to add to the repertoire this this summer on, yeah. the, on this tour that they're on because they're playing two shows. You buy one ticket, you get to go to two shows. They're not playing the same song twice for a guy like me. That's awesome. I got to hear a bunch of stuff that I haven't. So heard I mean, because so you got to like go to both. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's about, it looks like a 15 or 20 here. I've only seen once. Wow. So I, I think the first time I remember hearing, but I remember when I was in school, <clears throat> so different than it is now. I, we, when I took the bus to school first through eighth grade was on the same bus. I learned a lot of stuff that I probably had no business <laughs> learning when I was in first, second, third grade, uh -huh. but there was a guy with a master of puppets t-shirt. And I just remember looking at that thing. It scared me to death. I mean, this guy was probably 14. He was in the eighth grade. I'm probably in the second grade. I just remember thinking, what is that? It's evil looking. Yes. Yeah. And you can imagine to an elementary school kid, it's absolutely terrifying. So I was aware of Metallica, but I didn't know any Metallica music. I remember seeing kids older than me wearing Metallica clothes. I remember a guy getting on the bus one time with a Metallica t-shirt with these two skulls on there. Oh, yeah. And they're, oh, it looked like something out of Halloween. And it was <laughs> like, who are these kids? My parents would never let me even think about buying anything like this. They get to wear this to school. And that's how I 
first heard of Metallica, and I think the first time I heard a Metallica song would have been watching MTV, probably around 90, 91. I'm 10, 11 years old. And the video, and I can't remember what song it was for, but what I do remember is James is standing at the mic. He's just giving it all he's got, got the flowing hair. And when they show the audience, it's a, it's a live, it's a live concert that they're at for this video. And it is an ocean. I know it's when you're talking pandemonium. I, I know exactly. And what you're I talking was about. floored, Rick. I remember thinking this is like nothing I've ever seen before. Like, who are these guys? And, and, as a 10, 11 year old, you are learning more about, of course, the next album they come out with is a black album. And there's a, for Metallica purists, there's a lot of demarcation there. Um, Cause people will reference pre black album, post black album. I love it all. I think it's great. There's some people who are just really kind of stuck up about it. I'll sit here and argue all day that load and reload don't get the credit that they deserve. Yeah. So that's another sure. topic for another day. Uh, there is that line. And there are the trues, as they call them, that there's some out there that only that they think everything after Kill 'em All is crap, yeah. or that they sold out after <laughs> right, Kill 'em All. It's right. Like, okay, dude. Uh, but but yes. And by the way, that I as soon as you said it, the ocean of fans, uh, that would have been the Moscow show. Okay. That they played in '91. There were a couple other bands. I think Pantera was on it, and there was a. I don't have the full article in front of me, but this was not too long after the the wall fell. Right. And, you know, the things are changing in the USSR. And so basically there was a group as kind of a not a peace offering, but tensions were high. And it was a group of younger kids and folks were basically satisfied by whatever the uh, I wish I had in front of me because I'm not making a lot of sense. But basically a, a, a this huge rock concert, this right. This, young group of, I don't know what their political motivations were or anything, but again, politics are changing. The world is changing over there. So as part of like a come together or peace offering, the younger folks in Russia want this rock concert. So they get Metallica. I think Motley Crue was on that show. I'm not sure about Pantera. I could uh -huh. remember that. Motley Crue was there. I'm sure that footage exists of the other ones, but Metallica even today still talks about that show that they don't know how many people were there. I think it's been estimated that it's like a, as many as a million. Okay. Yeah. Here's an article. that says 1.6. It was 1991. Where was this? 1991 uh, monsters of rock festival in Moscow. And I believe in Moscow, okay. it was at, I don't know if it was an active uh, military base and airfield or if it was, let's see. So, the show was the reports estimated 1.6 to 2 million people at the monsters of rock monsters of rock concert at Tushino airfield. That's it. Okay. Moscow, September 28th, 1991. Uh, ACDC was actually the headliner feature Metallica, uh, Pantera, the black crows, Motley Crue and Queensryche. Man. Uh, so this would have been black album. Black album right I think around was out, had been out like a, I think it came out in August of 91. So it's been out like a month yeah. or two. Oh, wow. Those videos. So would this have been a video that I would have seen from a song from the black album? I, I guess it would have been. It could have been, but or, or this is just a live performance that I happen to see. I can't remember. It could have been live performance as well. Cause that, yeah. that footage back when MTV played such things back when that was a thing. Uh, I, again, all these other bands were on it. The one band that the footage seems to exist and shows up a lot, at least maybe it's just because I'm a Metallica fan, is Metallica said. Right. It is right. that looking out in that sea of people 
it is just pure insanity. On a much smaller scale, the live in Seattle 89 show I mentioned earlier, there's a shot uh, during the second song of that concert, and it's filmed for, for a home video, and it's you can now listen to it too. Second song in the set is For Whom the Bell Tolls, and there's a shot where the cameraman has gotten like right up next to Lars, so looking at him kind of from the side, uh, not looking at the crowd, and Lars is playing the drums and looks directly into the camera and then points and mouths into the camera look at that and the camera just pans out and it's the whole arena in seattle wow. just a sea of people just going crazy so um yeah what we'll, was, have to, we'll have to look more what was the show. last album with cliff burton master of puppets he died on that tour okay so first album with jason newstead was and justice for all okay yeah i love that album i love and, all those albums and the much the much uh talked about thing with and justice for all over the years is now, at least in the mix of it, you really can't hear the bass. Yeah. Because uh, Metallic, uh, James and Lars pretty much just yeah just turned it all the way down. So, wow. I think it, I think there's a whole lot else that goes into that of they they hadn't fully accepted Jason yet. And right. Cliff and that right. Whole deal, so, but yeah, that's uh, that's number one. I got to see my band with the one guy I never got to see him with. Cliff Burton, 1986. I like it. I like it. That's our first episode of. Yeehaw Junction. That's it. We we planned on about eh, an hour, hour and a half, and here we are. Here we are, two and a half hours later. <laughs> I enjoyed every second of it. Yeah. So if you made it all the way through, it, awesome. And if you didn't, well, we appreciate you hanging out for at least a little while. <laughs> yeah. That's and maybe right. we t- touched on a, on a, a musician or artist or or band that you liked. And like we said, we do this because it's we just have a lot of fun talking about it, and this gives us. Uh, a channel to discuss such things because these are the kind of conversations that you and I have all the time anyway. Yeah. Before a game or via text message. And Ben and I would sit here and have this exact same conversation we've had for the last two and a half hours. Yeah. We just wouldn't have microphones in front of us. Right. That's, that's the only difference. So if the only two people who hear this are you and me, or if lots of people hear this, either way, we're having a good time doing this. And this is episode one of 12. And like we said, our, our next episode, uh, the preview that uh, we gave you earlier we're gonna do our favorite side of an album yep side of a vinyl album gotta be a studio album so that'll be coming up with our next episode because i'm gonna be honest with you i think i could do a whole episode on favorite side of a live yeah album too. yeah i that could have you had to narrow it down i have to narrow it down yeah. so this has been awesome buddy it we're has off to a great story. it has so this is one of of 12 coming your way and like i said earlier we're recording these between uh the last game of the braves 2023 season and spring training of 2024 because that's our regular gig is baseball with the Atlanta Braves. So in our off season, we get to do this and it's a lot of fun. So we uh, appreciate you being out there and uh, Rick, we'll do it again here shortly for episode two. Ben, I'll see you right here at Yeehaw Junction. One Sounds week good. From now. <laughs> <laughs> see you, buddy. Later. <laughs>